Movies to me are still a magical thing. I think a lot of us take it for granted because there's so much content out there. There are so many great things to watch. We're so used to being able to see beautiful stuff anytime we want, whether it's on television or if it's on our fucking phones. I think that we forget the skill. I think we forget about the craft that is needed to literally transform you, to take you out of that living room, to take you out of the bathroom if you're sitting on the toilet and watching it and put you back in time, put you in another universe, put you in another person's perspective. And I love that about cinema. I've loved that since I was a kid. I loved that since the first time I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark and I was running alongside Harrison Ford, or I didn't even know it was Harrison Ford, running alongside Indiana Jones, running away from that giant boulder that was chasing us uh, to our death, essentially. And I loved that. And it wasn't until years later that I really paid attention to it, that I really acknowledged the steps, the process, the skills, the jobs, the people that help suspend disbelief for me, right? And I've talked about it in prior episodes on the show, like the first time I saw Jurassic Park and I was like, how the fuck did they grow dinosaurs? (laughs) Ah, so innocent back then, right? I love this stuff. It's the reason why I've said goodbye to any sort of normal life. It's the reason why uh, I don't get paid regularly. Um, and it's the it's the thing that still upset like I obsess over this thing still. Every night I go to sleep, I think about it. Every morning I wake up, I think about it. And it's been this way for me for almost twenty years. Twenty years of this obsession of this hunt, of this push to make films, to be one of the people that are creating these magical worlds. What we've tried to do on this show is introduce you to the people, to sort of broaden your horizon. If you're just a moviegoer listening to the show, broaden your horizons a bit and give you just a further glimpse into the individuals that make this stuff happen. Now, what we also try to do on this show is shine the light on the people that are doing things that you never really hear about, that you never really get into. I mean, how often when you're at the movies do you watch those credit rolls at the end and go like, holy shit, who are all these people? What is a key grip? What is a best boy? What does an editor do? Well, the theory is is that you kind of know what an editor does, right? In theory, an editor will take the footage that's shot and cut together scenes, cut together sequences. And so then as you're thinking about the edit of a film, you start to pull aside that veil. You start to go a little bit deeper into how a movie's made. And so you're looking at it going, okay, so an editor takes different shots, different takes and puts them together. So a director may do, if you're Fincher, 145 takes. So he has to go through and sort through all that footage or she has to go through and find the best version of that take and place that on the screen, correct? Well, that's just part of it. Not only are you sorting through coverage, not only are you sorting through performances and takes, but you're also the main driver. You're the ship, you're the the captain of the narrative. 
at the back end of the film. And I would argue, and many people would agree with me, that the movie is really made in the edit room. It's such an interesting craft, it's an interesting skill, and it's something surprisingly and embarrassingly I haven't really got into on the show yet. Uh, what are we at, almost episode 90 or whatever it is? And I haven't had an editor on the show yet. Shame on me, shame on us, Liam. <laughs> For not doing so yet because it is literally the most important aspect. Now, when I started my career as a director, I had to teach myself how to edit. And so many of you young filmmakers out there are in the same boat. Early on, when you haven't proven your skills to other people, you haven't proven your skills to yourself, it's very hard to convince people to come work for you, especially for free. So you need to start to build your craft. You need to start to build your skill. And so I sat down back when I was in New York Film Academy and I cut my first films on an old Steam Deck, which is film like a reel-to-reel -reel film system where you actually cut film and, and tape film together. That's how I started. Then went from there and moved on and started to play in the non-linear game back in the days where the non-linear edit systems were really coming out. I don't know if you guys remember some of the older listeners of the show, Media 100s, right? Uh, I used to love, 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 love working on Sony Vegas back in the day. Premiere sucked back then. Oh, Premiere was terrible. Didn't even bother touching that stuff. Uh, and then came Apple stepped up because Apple was really running the Media 100 game. They stepped up and they released Final Cut. And Final Cut started to run the market. I still loved Vegas. And this is me getting weird on fucking programs. And this isn't what the episode is going to be about. But I still loved Vegas because of how open-ended it was. And that format ended up becoming what Premiere is today. Um, so the progression of editing through computers has been rather amazing, you know, sorting through hundreds of hours of footage, being able to bin that footage on a computer, on a hard drive, being able to sort through it quickly, being able now to run timelines and sequences with multiple codecs. Uh, and basically for you guys that don't edit, that's media that comes in from all sorts of different cameras and every camera has its own specific set of rules as far as how it's encoding things and what the files are like and whether or not they can play in the same timeline. All this technical stuff is, I'd say, a good portion, almost 50% of what an editor does is sorting through the technical stuff because there is so much of it. An editor is ultimately dealing with any of the problems that you had on set. They're dealing with all the technical issues that come down from being on set, whether it's audio issues and trying to deal with that or whether it's uh, video codec issues, um, or just essentially just trying to sort through and find stuff and make sure that the, the notes are correct from on set, make sure that the dailies are correct. Dealing with colorists, dealing with VFX people. I mean, I'm not kidding when I say, on a film, at the third part, because I've talked about this in other shows, the first part is the conception and the prep, the second part is shooting, and dealing with that nightmare and fun, excitement. And then you go into the edit room. So if you started like I did, and like so many of you have, on your own, it was always a difficult thing for me because I would go on set and I would be so immersed with what happened on the day and how we captured all this footage. And then I would be bringing that energy into the edit room immediately. And it would be heartbreaking because you would see how, you would know how hard we worked. 
to get everything that we had. And then you would be sitting in front of a screen and staring at a couple of folders and bins and going, this is all we got? This is everything? Now, I highly suggest that if you are a director or if you're a cinematographer, you spend some time editing because you're going to understand the value of coverage. And by coverage, I mean the amount of shots and the different angles that you shoot for each scene. Because the stuff that you think works on set, the stuff that you think is amazing on set, you always get in the edit room and you go, oh my God, this isn't as good as I thought. How do we fix this? Every time I've ever done a movie, that's the process. How do we fix what we thought was going to be amazing? And that is in your coverage. That is in how many takes you do. That is in how long you rolled after you say cut. That is looking. I can tell you guys right now, and I don't want to ruin any performances for you, but how many actress performances I literally built from, from sections after I said cut. And the actor like releases and they just start to be relaxed. I'm like, whoa, whoa, that's a good moment. Grab that, boom. And we take that and put it in. There's so much magic in the edit room. And I'm excited about today's episode because I really want to open your eyes, whether you're a filmmaker, whether you're a movie fan, I really want to open your eyes to the magic that is in this edit room. And fast forward to where I am now, where I've learned how to cut. I've learned how to work with other editors because that's a whole step. How do you take what you think comes naturally to you and convey it out of your mouth to somebody else so that they completely understand what it is that you would do? That's your job, right? Once again, you're doing the same skills. You're taking the same skills that you use on set to convince an actor, to convince your cinematographer, to convince your props person to go with what's in your brain. You're using those same skills when you get into the edit room. And as an editor, a great editor has to have patience. A great editor has to have the ability to create things that are literally going to get thrown out. They have to fall in love with the footage. They have to fall in love with creating a sequence, knowing that it may not end up in the film. Knowing that not only are they trying to impress themselves, which is first and foremost, they're trying to impress a director. And then if you guys get on the same page, then you have to impress the producers. And then you have to impress... It's just this rhythm that runs all the way down. And then you cut a film that you think is perfect. And then you go watch it with an audience. It's awesome. Let me just say this right now. Editing and post-production. And I say this about a lot of pieces because I love this business. But it is the most exciting, magical experience, period. Period. Anytime that I cut anything, whether it's a music video or it's a film, when I'm in the edit room is when I get chills. When I'm in the edit room is when I get goosebumps. When I'm in the edit room, I feel like I'm fucking making something. So, I wanted today's episode, I wanted the first editor on this show to be someone that makes films that I admire, that inspire me, and I know is sure as hell, inspire the hell out of all these other filmmakers that are out there right now. And I wanted to make sure that I had someone in here that we can really dig deep into, and someone that, let me be 100% transparent, I'd love to work with. So on today's episode, I'm really happy to have convinced Brett Bachman to be on. Now, who's Brett? Well, Brett has edited movies that I fucking love. 
How about a little movie called Mandy, right? How many of you have seen Mandy? And if you've seen Mandy, you've seen Nicolas Cage's amazing performances. You've seen what the filmmaker has put together on that piece. Uh, and then you know who Spectre Vision is. And then this editor continues to work with Spectre Vision. He's done Color, of Out of, Color Out of Space, Pig, uh, The Vigil. Um, he just did Daniel Isn't Real, which I thought was an amazing piece. Uh, he's fantastic, guys. I'm very excited to have him on the show. I'm recording this intro before I talk to him, so I'm, I cannot wait to sit down and ask him a bunch of questions. I am such a Mandy freak. I love this movie. And I've been dying to get Panos on the show. This is the next best thing because he was in the edit room. So he understands how everything's going to be put together. So I'm going to ask a lot of questions that I've always wanted to ask about Mandy. So stand by for that. We'll get a little bit into the technical aspect of stuff. Um, so stand by for that. And I highly suggest that you guys love this show and you listen to the show because if you're a filmmaker, if you're someone that works on a film set and you just go fix it and post, this is going to blow your fucking face open. <laughs> That's my hope. Anyway, how's that for an intro? Um... Let's do some housekeeping here. I just want to say, as always, you guys are amazing. You continue to support us. Uh, you continue to promote us. Um, just recently, had a fan of the show put our graphic on a billboard, on a giant digital billboard in New Zealand on the side of a highway, guys. I have to get photos of it. I just sent everything out. So if you're in New Zealand, if you're listening to the show, uh, hopefully I'll have links underneath by the time this comes out, maybe you've seen my big ugly face on a billboard down there. How fucking cool is that? Talk about commitment, talk about love for the show. I cannot say enough great things about you, my friend. You know who you are. Thank you so much for supporting us. Thank you so much for doing that. Um, and also, look, I know that you guys are like, well, Mike, we can't get our shit on billboards. Well, it's fine. Just repost stuff. Just tell your friends about the show. That's the most important aspect, right? Send them along to our Instagram accounts. You can send them to the podcast Instagram, which is in love with the process pod. That's in love with the process pod on Instagram or my personal account at my petchiate Instagram, where a lot of you guys have been sending me suggestions for guests. And I have listened. If you've noticed, there have been a bunch of guests on the show that you guys have specifically asked for and we get them. That's because we like to create content that you want to hear. I like to get these suggestions. It makes me feel like I'm not so alone. It makes me feel like it isn't just me and Liam doing this. It makes me feel like we're all doing this together. And I love that. Um, and here's the thing. We just did it. I'm recording this episode. Uh, what is today? The 26th of June. So you know how these things get released. They're all out of order. But what we did this week is we went back and we remastered all of the original episodes of In Love With The Process. So the first, right now the first three are up there, soon to be the first five episodes are remastered, brand new audio quality, and because we're now making the move to YouTube, so we have a YouTube channel for In Love With The Process, go there now and subscribe. Go there now and subscribe. 
I say that twice because there's a lot of fans on the show that listen to us through uh, Apple Podcasts, that listen to us through Spotify. We're not going anywhere. We're still going to be on these outlets. But go to the YouTube channel and subscribe because what you're going to get on that YouTube channel are remastered episodes. We're going to eventually catch up. It's almost like a reboot. We're rebooting the show for the YouTube audience. But you're like, okay, what's YouTube? What, What the fuck am I going to look at? We're creating very cool, very specific and special loops for the early episodes. So video loops that you can watch while listening that are constructed from outtakes and extended takes from 12KM. So you're actually going to be able to see different versions of specific takes of 12KM as you listen to the show. Right? How cool is that? Especially on an episode where we're talking about editing. So do yourself a favor right now while you're listening. It's totally cool. You can multitask. I know you can do it. Click on the link below. Go to our YouTube channel and check it out. Subscribe. Like. And for those of you who are like, look, I don't want to go to YouTube. I don't like YouTube. Okay, that's fine. Do me a favor then. Show your support by rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Scroll down on your phone. You'll see the comment section. Leave us a star amount. And you can leave me a fucking one. If you're like, Mike, I'm so tired of you bullying us. That's fine. Leave me a one. I don't care. Just fucking rate. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. Anyway, I love you guys. And I hope you guys have been enjoying the show as much as I have. I am so excited to be able to meet people like today's guest. Who knows? Maybe a bond will be formed. We shall see. I have a lot of questions for this man today. I cannot wait. So let's not hold back any longer. You know the deal. Get those noise-canceling headphones. Find a nice comfy place to sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Hey, Brett, thanks for being on the show, my man. Happy to be here, guys. Uh, I just did an intro talking about what a fan I am of your work, what a fan I am of the SpectreVision films that you guys have put out. And Jesus Christ, man, I love Mandy. So I'm very excited to throw some questions at you on the show. I am happy to do my best to try and answer. <laughs> well, before we get into all that stuff, let's just catch the audience up. For those of you that are listening that don't really know uh, like Brett's career and where he's coming from, how did you get started in editing? Where did it start for you? Uh, whoa. I, mean, I think we might have to go way back. Um, it really Do started. It, it, I, will, I will roll it back. Uh, I think I must have been about 13 or 14. Um, oh, Wow. Uh, yeah, we had so it would have been back in the Seattle foothill, like the foothills of the Cascade Mountains. I was uh, growing up on a little, a little farmhouse, five acres, kind of out in the country. And mm-hmm. I think my first experiences with editing was like making movies of my cats, my dogs, my chickens, and <laughs> playing around with a Windows Movie Maker. Ah, okay. Um, all right. I would borrow uh, my aunt's video camera, take the stuff out and just film like the film videos of my chickens 
<laughs> add them into Windows Movie Maker, add title effects, do star wipes, and just basically play around. I remember in particular um, grabbing uh, that song from Ferris Bueller, uh, and like splicing that together with shots of like chickens and cows just made me so happy. And I think I had a, that was like my side hobby for like a year, just doing stuff like that. Um, I, I, it was always just kind of me dicking around and having fun. I never really thought it could kind of evolve into really anything uh, until I was 16, 17. And mm-hmm. around that time, I was a junior in high school. I was playing high school football. And uh, we, my senior year was approaching. And every senior in my class has this big thing our senior year that they call the senior project, which is a, essentially a career fair where you have to demonstrate some kind of you know career proficiency in one area. And I thought I was going to go into sciences or go into medicine. And so I was like researching, you know, general stuff about maybe being a family practitioner or a zoologist. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do this a job shadow. You have to do this big, big paper. And then you have to make this product. You have to make something. And for the life of me, I couldn't think of anything I wanted to make, anything I want to make that involved with either being a zoologist or being a doctor. Um, but <laughs> I remember uh, one of my friends in the next town over, he had a, I remember him bringing me over one day and he showed me this highlight wrestling video that a friend of his had cut for his wrestling team. Uh-huh. And it was just, you know, kind of your standard, you know, high school athletics highlight reel with footage from the year, but they had interviews and they had all these gags and all the kind of these sketches and bits. And I thought that was really fun and it stuck with me for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so as I was approaching like my decision of what I was going to do for my senior project, like my career fair, uh, uh-huh. I asked my football coach if I could like make a documentary about our high school football team, about the high school football team I was playing on. And mm-hmm. they said, yes. And so uh, in January of 2004, I just started shooting stuff like in the preseason, <laughs> you know, preseason <laughs> workouts, you know, footage of people just kind of dicking around, having fun, um, just, you know, interactions like after school and stuff. And I just kept on doing that for throughout the rest of the winter, the spring. Uh, we went to a, uh, a summer camp and I brought the camera with me. And I just kept on shooting like these little interactions and whatever, whenever I could, you know, if there was like a down moment of practice or something like this and was being made fun mm-hmm. of a lot. But you know, like everyone, you know, after, you know, <laughs> three months of like, you know, oh, Brett and this weird camera thing, they just kind of rolled with it and became like a normal part of the process. And when we got into the regular season, I would have uh, – uh, I would update footage from the high school video production class who would be like shooting the games. And then there'd be like people shooting for me in the stands. Uh, I would be like shooting on the sidelines, like in my pads and like without a helmet, because I really wasn't playing that much. I didn't play that often. It was second string, (laughs) third string kind of guy would play in like special teams and whatnot. So, you know, take this, like this little JVC mini DV camera with me, like up and down the, uh, the sidelines. And at the, at the end of the season, um, I had, you know, 50, 60 hours. I did talking heads. I did interviews with a lot of the players. And I remember the most at peace I felt in this process. Like the most at home, the most relaxed, the most creative I ever felt was when the season stopped. And mm-hmm. I was taking video production for the first time in my life. 
uh, got introduced to Final Cut Pro 5 and started just building something in on this uh, like 2003 eMac that we had in the video production lab, <laughs> not knowing uh-huh. anything, like not knowing what I was doing, just like, okay, I just want to string together all these events of the season. And you know, there's a story in here. And I spent, you know, the next five months, uh, not really knowing what I was doing, but putting together this documentary. And at the end of all of this, I had a three hour long documentary about our season. That was, wow. I, I wow. had a, uh, I had like a little premiere in on March of that of 2005, and a lot of a lot of the almost all the team came in a big section of uh, you know, the school. Like it was, it was still a small premiere. I think there was only maybe about you know 100 people there in total. But I remember like the end of that, in particular the next day, like after having this big cathartic premiere, this experience. Uh, I remember going into the video production lab the day after. And sitting mm-hmm. down at this computer that I'd edited the entire thing at, um, I'd spent, you know, every single day from like 2.30 p.m. until like 7 p.m. at night, being the last person, last student to leave the school a lot of these nights, and just wishing I had something else to work on. Like wishing there was like the movie was not done, wishing there was something else I could do, and just staring like at this blank Final Cut Pro timeline, just wishing there was something else to work on. And <laughs> I, I just, I don't know why it took me a long time to realize this, but I was just like, I can go make something else. I can go shoot something else. Yeah. 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 And it kind of took off from there. Uh, Went to, uh, I went to this little state school called Western Washington university up in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, I started doing Mm -hmm. a lot of sketch comedy while I was up there. Mm -hmm. Um, I was uh, writing stuff, directing stuff, editing. Um, I, uh, Part of me felt that there, this documentary, even though it was three hours long, I hadn't completed or hadn't done what I had set out to do. So I made two more of those. I would travel back and forth between my college and my hometown, and I would still shoot some of these games for the players. And by that point, it had become you know, a project for my friends in the next class. And so I have these Three, I have these three high school football documentaries that we'll never see the light of day because no, none of us knew what we were doing. There's licensed music <laughs> everywhere. You could sure. not, you know, and, and, you know, they're, but for what they were, I mean, it was a fun learning experiment. And yep. uh, I guess I really started getting serious about editing when I was a, a senior in college and by that, we didn't really have much of a film program at my university, but everything I was doing there was you know, more or less self-taught through the college TV station. Um, and it was just like a group of about 20 of us that were, were making these sketch comedy shows. There was news programs we were making, music videos we were shooting kind of like on the side. And mm-hmm. I was turning 21, 22, and I knew I wanted to go into film somehow. And... There really wasn't much of an avenue to kind of do that in Seattle or in Western Washington. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember contemplating the idea of like film school of like, I, I love the idea of like something regimented, something disciplined, something specific. And so I started toying like very, very late with the idea of, should I do an NYU is a USC AFI. And I started looking around for all these schools at directing. Um, and mm-hmm. 
I had missed the deadline on so many of these schools already because it was something that was already like super, super late in the process. And, but I remember Chapman uh, and there was an AFI, well, it was Chapman and I think one or two more schools that had still directing applications open. And I was looking over like the big five, the NYUs, the USC's, uh, UCLA, and I saw that AFI was still taking submissions for editing. And I'd mm-hmm. always kind of held AFI in like a really high regard, but I never considered myself just to, at that point, you know, 21, 22, I didn't really think I would just want to focus in on editing. And I kind of made like this off the cuff comment to my, you know, sketch comedy friends one day as we were like striking a set and wrapping everything up, like, oh, I'm thinking Emerson. Oh, I'm thinking Chapman. Uh, you know, AFI was open for editing, but I don't want to do that. And there was this really awkward moment where like everybody stopped working. Everyone kind of sort of looking <laughs> at me and, you saw like one person like look at another person and then one person looked at another and they're like, do you want to tell them? Like, I know you should tell them. And everybody kind of <laughs> sighed and they're like, you shouldn't pursue directing. You should pursue editing. Ah, <laughs> uh, like, the oh, truth, the, mo- the truth, the moment of transparency. And I'm, I'm so yeah. fucking glad they did. Uh, I applied late to the program, not really thinking I would get in. Uh, I remember being shocked, completely shocked when I heard this conservatory wanted to bring me down for an interview in person. So yep. I flew down there. I bought an off the rack suit from like Nordstrom rack. <laughs> I remember sitting <laughs> in like go my first time going down the Southern California, really for my first time traveling on my own and going to uh-huh. the AFI campus, like in a like black suit with like a black tie and white shirt being the only person on campus wearing a suit sitting in like the lobby and like everyone else is walking around and you know jeans and a t-shirt and going into uh the vice dean's office and just just getting grilled like you're here for editing why are you here for editing tell me why you want to be an editor and not a director and really yeah. And I'm like, this guy just seen right through me. Like, there's no way this is going to go well for me. And, you know, I'm telling him about the stress we had on the sketch comedy shows. Like, oh, I had to put something to get, put an entire sketch together in 48 hours. And I'm used to, you know, being kind of working on the fly. And he's like, well, have you ever worked with a director before? Have you ever worked with someone as an editor, you know, where you're in a support capacity as opposed to being, you know, the creative person in charge? And me just like looking him dead in the eye and like shaking my head and saying, I- I've never done that. I have no idea how, how I would do in that situation. And then him like, you know, striking his chin and nodding. He's like, okay, yeah, great. We'll let you know. And me leaving the front doors, pull out my cell phone immediately and just call my mom. And I'm like, this was a waste. I didn't get in. I'm going back to the Motel 6. I'm going to wait for two days for my flight and I'm coming home and we'll forget this ever happened. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and you know, long, long story short, I got in. I got like a a a, a message back. I think a week later, and was like, "Congratulations, you are in." And mm-hmm. then I then I moved down to Southern California in two thousand nine. Wow, dude, that's fantastic! I mean, getting into AFI is such an amazing thing because they are, as you just explained, they are pretty tough to get into. Um, but Hey man, fucking Hey, and that's great that your pals had the balls to tell you that, you know, cause that sometimes you need to hear that from somebody else to be, yeah. like, this is what you're really great at, man. I, um, I, I can, 
I don't know where I would have been right now had it not been for kind of that crucial moment. I, it may have just been a couple more years of, you know, trying to make the directing thing happen when I never, and then editing was always my favorite part of the process. Editing was always where, where I felt most at home, where I felt most I could make mistakes, where I could fuck up, where I could try things mm-hmm. that I felt were ridiculous without having someone over my back. And I'm so happy that I had that kind of come to Jesus moment or like that, uh, you know, that, uh, that moment, like when I was only 21, you know, I, yeah, I dude, several- that's crazy. That's crazy, man. That early on is really great. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? To be able to get that. Cause a lot of people don't, a lot of people are just sort of shuffling around going, I don't know. I can't figure this out. And then, you know, the next thing you know, you're 30, <laughs> next thing you know, you're 30, you're like, fuck, I should have just done editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, dude, I, great origin story. I love it. And the uh, you and I have a lot of parallels as far as like uh, editing and how to do that because early on I I said this in the intro of the show early on um, I had to teach myself how to edit because being a young filmmaker it's really difficult to convince people to do shit with you if you mm-hmm. haven't proven yourself and so uh, I'm very happy um, that I got into editing early on because it really taught me how to be a better cinematographer because I eventually was shooting and it mm-hmm. taught me how to be a, a much better editor. Uh, mm. Understand, I mean, a much better director rather. Understanding how the edit works. Understanding like what is needed to make scenes. Understanding how scenes are actually made and how like when you're shooting on set, you're like, this is the most amazing shit. And then you get in the edit room and you look at the bin and you're like, there are only three fucking clips in there? <laughs> yeah, I can maybe use 5% of this? Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, fuck, why am I such an asshole? You know, it's like the edit to me, like uh, getting in the edit room as a, as a director, the first couple of days is always so nerve wracking for me because mm-hmm. you get in there and you're just like, okay so what did we actually get (laughs) you know besides besides being on set and hearing the producers yelling in my ear and the location guys fucking shitting on me and then you know all this stuff that we had to go through and we literally trudged through a battle to get everything that we got and then you sit in the edit room and you go okay so do we get enough (laughs) it's the most nerve-wracking process for me too (laughs) Like, I, I think any other editor you talk to, they'll be like, the worst moment is like when the director comes in, like that first day of the assembly. I oh. think most of these times, you know, directors are like watching stuff if you've been assembling footage, like as the shoot has been going. But, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you have someone that comes in that, you know, either wants to watch down all of like your three hour assembly or all of your two and a half hour assembly. And you just don't know how they're going to react. You don't know if they're going <laughs> to like what you've been doing, if you're, if they're going to insist that you just saw this completely wrong. Um, and you get some wild suggestions like after that first assembly. So I hear you, man, I'm right there with you. Okay, everybody, you know the deal. It's that time to take a break and thank the people that make this show possible. And I'm just going to say right now, for those of you who are so used to listening to the show and you're about to fast forward through the reads, you might miss some shit. That's all I'm going to say. You might miss some good stuff. So if you do that, then maybe I've given the secret to your career and you've missed it. (laughs) Now I got to follow through right now that I have your attention. All right, first up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. Now, 
I cannot say enough good things about Puget Systems and my buddies there. If you are a filmmaker, if you're an editor, hey, what do you know? We're doing a whole episode about video editing. As you know, I have made the swap. I have made the jump to PC. I made the jump years ago and I have never looked back. I love it. I love having custom built systems that work specifically for my needs. I like having more than three choices on hardware. You know what I mean? There's something really great about being back in the PC world where all the hardware manufacturers are battling it out and we're consistently getting the best stuff at the best prices because there's competition. It's the power of competition. If you are looking for a brand new computer, definitely consider getting a PC. Uh, everything that we use on the Mac works on the PC and it, I would even say it works better. So if you're using Adobe Creative Suite like I am, it works on both systems. And I know some of you are like, I don't know how to use a PC. Do you know how to use a folder operated fucking operating system? It's easy. You start it up, you open the folder, you double click on the icon, Premiere, Photoshop, Audition, all those programs run the same way, right? And the thing I like about PCs more than, listen, it's like a PC ad all of a sudden. The thing I like about PCs more than I like about Mac is that um, it's a lot easier to get access to those files and folders that they have hidden for you. Apple likes to keep you out of folders that will fuck things up. That's how they, that's how they assure you that your system will continue to run. Keep your hands out of this folder. Don't fuck up the system. On a PC, a lot of times when you're doing like autosave files for different programs, get put in hidden files. There are places where you're like hunting for like, where the fuck did this brush go? Uh, it's very easy to get access to that stuff on a PC. I love it. And if you're considering making the jump, uh, go check out PugetSystems.com. Now here's what Puget Systems does. They build machines. They don't manufacture machines, they build machines. That means they're never going to be pushing their product on you. They're always going to be looking for the best running piece of hardware, the best working hardware, and the best price for hardware for you. So they're charging you to build a system. They're charging you for their experience, for their benchmark tests, for all of that. You know, all those fears that you have when you're going to build your own PC, what motherboard works with this? What memory works with this? What graphics card works with this? Should I get the newest thing? Should I get the older one? Which one's best for After Effects? Which one's best for fucking Premiere? Puget Systems has gone through and done all of these tests. Go to PugetSystems.com. If you're someone that's just looking for a computer that you're going to get, buy, open, set up, and be done, open the box and be ready to rock, go there, choose one of their products. I'm doing it right now. So I'm on their website. Click on Products. You can actually select a system based upon the software you use. Um, their Genesis systems are fantastic for post-production. You click on Genesis. Recommended Genesis workstation configurations for Adobe Premiere Pro, for Unreal Engine stuff, SolidWorks stuff. Um, their Genesis systems are fantastic. You can customize those systems by simply pushing on Customize. You can go through and customize with a bunch of different options that they have, or you can contact them directly. Write to them, tell them what it is that you're dealing with, what it is that you like. This isn't some giant company conglomerate. This is a company that is run by a family. This is a family-owned business. I know all the dudes that work there. 
they respond to your emails. So if you want to have a relationship with a company with solid people that give a fuck and that that actually care about the art that you create, check out PugetSystems.com. And not only can you buy a system if you're in the U.S., but if you're outside of the U.S. or even if you want to build your own system, you can hire them on their consulting only. So I think for like $500 starting price, they will help you build your own system. They will give you access to everything that they know, everything that they've learned, give you uh, suggestions on the gear to buy so that you can build your own system. You can build your own Puget system, which is very important for those of you who don't live in the United States um, because I have a lot of listeners in Australia and the UK and like, Mike, we can't buy a Puget because they don't ship internationally. They now have this thing where you can go get consultation on how to do it. So go to PugetSystems.com and with everything that's going on right now, they wanted me to just let you guys know that um, because of the Black Lives Matter issues out there right now, they are just as fed up as everybody else. Um, and this is what they're talking about here. We want to play a part in change outside the walls of Puget Systems. Uh, they want to put action behind those words. This is from John Bach, the owner of Puget Systems. That is why I am announcing that we will be matching all donations to the NCAA, I'm sorry, to the NAACP Empowerment Program made through the link below. So if you donate through their link to the NAACP Empowerment Program, up to $20,000, they're going to match it. Okay, so it's pretty cool. We'll put a link below. I know, Liam, you're going to be excited about that. I will send you this link as we're speaking. Um, definitely check them out. I love these guys, man. These guys really, truly give a shit. And I know there's a lot of fucking companies out there that are trying to jump on the bandwagon. I was bitching about them on another episode. And that's why I was kind of weary about reading this here. Because companies are trying to become social warriors. This isn't coming from a company. This is actually coming from a man, from a gentleman that works there. Um, so I understand who he is, and I think that's the only reason why I feel comfortable reading it on the episode. Um, so check them out. Puget Systems, build yourself a brand new PC. Also, supporting the show as always are our good friends over at Quasar Science. Uh, one of the biggest advancements in the movie industry has been LED lighting and LED lighting technology. Um, so if you're looking to build a new lighting kit and you're looking for uh, rainbow LEDs, if you're looking for bicolor LEDs, if you're looking for the ability to be working off of battery power, lightweight, um, are actually cool on set, meaning that the temperature on set doesn't rise when you use them, uh, definitely consider Quasar Science. Go to quasarscience.com. I have a bunch of their lights in my kit. So like if you've seen pieces that I've done for Dale Strong, um, I use those Quasar Science stuff. And if you've been sticking with the read here, I'll let you guys know. So um, I've done a piece for Dale Strong recently, which were um, slow motion, a series of slow motion shots, shot with the Phantom of knives cutting through food. And uh, I don't know if you guys have been following me on Instagram, at my Petchy, by the way, you've seen those posts. There are some really cool inserts that I did of the blades themselves, right? And product photography can be such a pain in the ass. Really can be because you're oftentimes dealing with how the product looks, how clean the product looks. 
I knew in the circumstances that I had to get these insert shots. And I knew that I had to get these insert shots when I was in editing. It wasn't pre-editing. This is when I was cutting. I was like, I got to go do insert shots, which meant that I didn't have the team. I didn't have the crew. I definitely didn't have a stylist, someone that was maintaining that look. So how do I shoot cool blade stuff? How do I shoot really interesting um, reflective material stuff? Because knives are basically mirrors. So anything that's in the room, it's seen in the knife when you shoot it. So how do I get this look and how do I make it feel sharp? The way I was able to pull that off, I shot those uh, little bits with um, our Nikon D810. So that was shot on a DSLR that we just had here in the edit room. I basically grabbed the knives, put them on a table, set it up with the prime lens. I was probably using the 50 or 24, probably the 50. Um, and I got myself one of the four foot bicolor quasar tubes that are battery powered. Black space, put the knife on the table, did an above down shot, and essentially dialed in my light to be the right color temp and the right brightness. And like an old school uh, photocopy machine, I just ran the light over the surface of the knives. That's it. So it was one quasar tube, a DSLR, and a knife. And that's how I got those really badass looking shots. So there you go, a little tip on how I did something for those of you who are sticking through the read. I'll try to do that more often. Okay, guys. Uh, so go to quasarscience.com. There you go. Uh, okay, also really important, go and support the brand new In Love With The Process YouTube channel. Go there now. If you go and check it out, you'll see that we've remastered the first five episodes of the show. That meant... What does remastered mean? I essentially went through and fixed the audio, cleaned up all the audio, made it so that they sound like current episodes, and I made video loops. So I went through all of my raw footage from 12KM because this is this really great moment where uh, Pavel and the professor are sitting there listening to the sounds from the planet, and it looks like they're listening to a podcast. So it works perfectly. So I've gone through and found all the takes of this, multiple angles of this, and I'm using different takes for each episode to create these loops. So it's a little bit different, it feels familiar, it looks gorgeous, it's really great stuff. So if you wanna have some visual supplement to the show, go to our YouTube channel. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. We need to get our numbers up there. So please subscribe to the, sh to the show, subscribe to the channel. For those of you who are like, I don't like YouTube, don't worry, we're not going anywhere. We'll also be here on Apple uh, Podcasts. We'll also be here on Spotify. So still good to go. You'll just get a better experience on YouTube. That's all I'm saying. So go check it out. All right. Let's get back to it. I think, and I've said this before if you're a young director listening to the show if you're a young cinematographer listening to the show sit down in front of an edit room sit down in front of an edit system and if you're uh have the ability to go visit an edit room and go visit an edit happening go look at your work raw because you a lot of people just don't understand how much of the stuff is made in the edit and so if you can go look at your work raw and you can see how your work is actually being laid out you'll become better at it 
you'll definitely become better as a shooter for, for the love of God. My cinematographer that I've been using lately, uh, David Cruda, which there's a drinking game on the show. Every time I mention his name, someone takes a drink. Um, uh, him and I have been working together for a few years now. And I have invited him into the edit process and I've brought him in there just to make, just so that he can see it. There's something different about uh, me going to someone afterwards going, look, I had a hard time with the way you were doing this stuff. And they go, well, yeah, were you doing it right? <laughs> and so then you're like, well, just come in. And so you come in the room and you see it. And you, you don't have to say anything. You just sit in the back room and they go, oh, that really didn't work. You go, okay, now you get it. <laughs> now you understand. Okay, cool. Now we can move on. Now we can get to something bigger and better. And I, I love the edit room, dude. The edit room to me is like, it is, it is where... It's like, all right, if, if you're going to have a baby, you go through the process of like having sex, having the idea that you're going to do it. You go through pregnancy. The edit room is birth. The edit room is where this child comes out, where this creature is, is crafted. Um, I love and the it's analogy. such, dude, it's such a <laughs> sacred, it's such a sacred place. I fucking love it. It's one of my favorite, uh, pro parts of the whole filmmaking process because there's a sense of excitement in it. And if you, have the ability to let go mm -hmm. as a director. If you have the ability to let go of a lot of ideas and discover things, the shit that I've been credited for has been discovered in the edit room where people are like, wow, this is an amazing thing. And, and most directors are like, yeah, we meant to do that. No, 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 no. No, that was built in the edit room, my man. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that was just me just sort of going on a rant on that. I love it. I love it. And I'm very pumped to ask you, um, your experiences. Now, let's talk a little bit about, because there's two sides of the story here, mm -hmm. right? So as an editor, you're dealing with the craft, you're dealing with storytelling, you're dealing with communicating with other storytellers, you're dealing with designing suspension of disbelief. And then there's the other side of the coin, which is like, you're dealing with codex, you're dealing with programs, you're dealing with conforming and, and that whole nightmare. So mm -hmm. Uh, I'm always complete. I have a, a ton of admiration for an editor that has the ability to do both because it always drives me. It's like two different helmets that you got to wear going into, you know, a mine where it's like I'm either creative or I'm dealing with this fucking hard drive that keeps spinning and it's, nothing's loading. You know yeah. what I mean? And in indie film, you got to do a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I'm at a, I had to kind of balance everything when I was first getting started. I had to be my own assistant on, I think, my my first couple films. So, I mean, not only, you know, taking in like the raw material from set, but transcoding it and syncing it, doing outputs. If there was any mm -hmm. troubleshooting, you know, not only would I have to try and budget out my time that day to actually like get into the scene and assemble the scene, but I had to figure out, you know, why is Final Cut crashing every other half an hour? <laughs> what is this corrupt, uh, corrupt render thing? Yeah, you yeah, you definitely, uh, you definitely have to find a way to kind of balance both. Um, and even more than that, I mean, yeah, you have the, tech, the technical elements and you have the creative as well. But there's so much to be said about the interpersonal. I mean, the the way of handling the politics of the editing room, the way of nurturing the environment inside that space to make it feel like people like the producers, the directors can come in and nurturing that environment to make sure that this is a place they can feel that they are safe to try out ideas, that they mm -hmm. would, you know, the, they have the opportunity here to do things that they maybe might be embarrassed to ask or they would have been embarrassed to ask earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, 
so much of that also goes into maintaining a, an amicable relationship. If there are, uh, you know, if the director and producer see two things different ways, I mean, you have to find a way to kind of navigate that scenario to make sure that people feel like everybody's heard. They have to have, trust the patients in the process. And so you have that third dynamic on top of it as well. You have to be a storyteller, you have to be a technician, but you also kind of have to be a therapist at the same time. Yeah. That's it's almost like being a bartender at that point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I swear there are some days where either director has just like gotten he showed a private link to the producers and they come into the data that room and they sit down and you can you can just hear the huff and their coffee pot slams down and you just swivel around <laughs> in your chair and you're like, tell me what happened. <laughs> and, they, and they'll go and sometimes they'll, they'll be like, that's ah, no, no worries. And sometimes they'll go into it for like an hour, an hour and a half. And <laughs> it's, I, I would like to believe that I'm an editor. You could tell anything to, I, I think that's an important part is one of the more crucial parts of the process is gaining the trust of your coworkers, of your, of your director, of your producers. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's part of it would be like a bartender. I suppose you're right. Well, and this is like salt, like at least with me, with the editors that I work with, this solid bond that is formed. Cause at that point you're going through, you're literally, it's interesting that you talk about trust because once you form that trust, the two of you are going through such an emotional roller coaster, mm -hmm. building these sequences and looking for these things and finding these things. And there's nothing better than that moment where you discover something that you didn't know existed. Oh yeah. And that that like that gut thing that you feel, like that quivering inside your gut where you're just like, this is exciting. This is fucking fantastic. Um we had um the first moment that comes to mind was actually on Mandy. Um Ooh. We had uh, – this was coming at a point in the process where uh, – so spoilers abound. I'm going to completely spoil the film if you have not seen Mandy. Uh, yeah, watch, but, watch it. Watch it. There is a point um, where uh, Cage is going – he's just tried uh, the juice. He's done, he's done acid. Uh, he's done the skull <laughs> juice. He goes down and he gets into the axe fight with the, uh, the black skull next to the burning car. Mm -hmm. And – we are well into like Red's journey at this point. We're well into his revenge story, but we all kind of like Panos and I felt like there was something just kind of emotionally. We wanted to link back into the, the travesty at that moment. Like we wanted to feel like remind the audience of like, what is going on? Like, why is Red on this journey? Mm -hmm. And so I tried something out. I just grabbed my iPhone and I did my best impression of like a Cenobite Gothic, you know, biker and uh, we recorded the, we came up with the idea that this thing is taunting him as it's burning, as like it's, as it's, uh, as he's about to die. So we recorded this bit where it's like, she still burns, she's burning, she's burning. <laughs> and that was something we just like made up on the fly in the editing room being like, this will like remind the audience of like what Red is doing. Like he's, he's being taunted from the afterlife by his, by his dead partner. And awesome. it changed the entire <laughs> dynamic of that section. You're like that yes, I'm back in it. This is, I'm back into the revenge element. I'm back into like what, wh why he is doing this. <laughs> That's such a great moment too. Um, oh, dude, well, since we're on Mandy, let's dig into that. Yeah. Like, um, so everybody, the, there's the infamous uh, Nicolas Cage breakdown scene. Infamous, mm -hmm. you know, in the bathroom and all that stuff. And as a director, I watched that sequence and I, like the set's really great, and there's sort of like that wide shot, 
And there seems to be in the cut, which I love, by the way, there seems to be in there this moment where it almost looks like the cameraman didn't realize that Nicolas Cage was going to go that far. And he's like, oh, shit, I got to go in for a close-up. <laughs> <laughs> so he does this move in. Is that true? Is that intentional? Or is that an accidental thing? Uh, I will give you the full story behind that. Um, yes, please. So there are two takes of that. Uh, we used a second take. The first take was a rehearsal. Um, and Nick probably only gave you about 50% of what you in- end up seeing in that second take. Like he still mm-hmm. goes hard. Um, but there was something about that second take, just this, this absolute, I mean, the performance speaks for itself in yeah. regards to what you're seeing. Um, what happened was that, uh, Panos always wanted to shoot this scene as if it was like some kind of Japanese kabuki theater. Like some, like you're seeing this tableau shot and you're seeing the, this entire breakdown over the course of like these two minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think him and Cage both knew like as far as like Nick was going to go, they're probably only, only going to get this moment maybe like once or twice. Because, I mean, if, if you shouted as long, as hard as he does in that scene, your voice is gone. <laughs> and you can't get that voice back in a, in a second or third take. You can't ADR that. Like, that. that's it. Yeah. And so on that second take in question, what happened was that uh, Nick goes over to this armoire. He rips it open, and he's looking for his vodka bottle. And he starts, like, throwing <laughs> all these things out of the drawer. And unbeknownst to you know, everybody's paying attention to Cage. And Cage grabs a towel, and he th- he's throwing them all over the place. One of the towels lands on the dolly rack. And so, and no one had known this. And so we're, you know, Nick sits down on the toilet and the camera's pushing in and they snag on this towel on the dolly. <laughs> and they realize like, holy fuck, like we can't, we literally cannot go in any longer. And so the, the operator is just like panicking, like what, what, where do I frame this? We can't cut, you know, how, <laughs> And so they actually, they, I, if you see it, what you're seeing is the dolly actually like backing up momentarily, you know, I think uh, someone running in, grabbing this towel out of the way. And then the dolly pushes back in yes. and they cut and Panos was like, that's the take. Like that's, we're not getting that again. This is, this is what it is. I'm proud of it. It's let's move on. Dude. dude and I'm going to say this right. Fucking a like power to you both for leaving that take in there because that is perfect. And I feel like that is the antithesis. And this is why I love this movie. This is why I like Panos is that's the antithesis of what's happening right now in cinema. Everybody right now seems to be so fucking obsessed with David Fincher. I love Fincher and I love his shit, but everybody's obsessed with stabilization. Everybody's obsessed with everything needing to be perfect. And if you go back and look at all your favorite movies, like for me, I'll go back and look at like Die Hard, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and I've talked about it on the show before. This is a sequence where uh, Bruce Willis is finally fighting, um, what's his name? Not Carl, but the, the brother that's still alive. And they're on the top of the staircase. He punches him in the face a couple times, wraps the chain around his neck, and they drags him down the staircase. And there's a dolly move in on the long lens, and that motherfucking camera shakes all over the place. Mm. It is the most imperfect camera move period but it adds to everything about that movie it adds to the to the to the tone it adds to all of that and the fact that the filmmaker didn't have the tools at that time to go can we just zoom in and stabilize this shot it would have been so much more sterile yeah and i love that about mandy i love how rough and raw and like if it was a sketch there there aren't fine lines around the edges of that sketch it's all still sketch lines 
I love that about that movie. I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I mean, that is something that Panos had such a strong vision for and something we were doing our, you know, something we were really striving to make sure we hit in the edit, in the DI, in the sound mix, in the music. Oh. I mean, he, he, Panos is one of these directors that you just want to sit down with and hear him just spew. You, you want to, you want, the vision is so strong coming off of this guy that you just want to sit down and hear what he has to say how, how to go about doing it because he was, I, I think when I first got started, those first like two days of like trying to feel out like where, where is your vision at? And, you know, him asking to make it, make it a little bit rougher, you know, it's, it's okay that this isn't polished. I prefer to have this grit to it. And as soon as you kind of click into like what he's trying to do, it oh, became such a fun process. So cool. Um, That's so cool. He, he's one of those guys that I think really understands how, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the the sterile word because that's something we were constantly trying to fight against in, in every aspect of it. I mean, that was something that um, c- it came down to the aesthetic of the film grain that we that we uh, superimposed on top of the image. Um, all mm-hmm. the film grain you see in the movie was a 35 millimeter grain stock that we bought from you know Rocket Stock and you know other online uh, online uh, film sales. Fasc- fascinating, fascinating. That's great. You know, we we would we would have loved to shoot on film for Mandy. Pandos really wanted to, um, but I think there was some issue with the Bond company that they wouldn't allow it, and we only had a certain budget, and so we ended up shooting on Alexa. But we did all the film stock, all that imp- imperfection stuff. We ended up creating in in a combination of you know base light and sound. Uh, when uh, Johan was working on the score, he purposely left in a lot of noise. He worked so hard on going back and reuse reusing all this equipment, you know, from the seventies, from the eighties to really have that analog synth quality to it, noise and distortion and dirt, um, in visual effects. We had to really mess up a lot of the shots. We had purposely went into the shots and, you know, blurred edges and made it look rough, made it look gritty, make it look raw. Um, and that's something like, even now when I'm, I just got done doing another film with SpectreVision um, called Color Out of Space, where we had the same notes with our visual effect team. Like, no, we, we want this thing to blow out. The, we want this thing to blow out the frame. We want it to be so bright that a camera can't capture it. We want yeah. lens squares everywhere to make it feel like it's imperfect because you go back and you look at Close Encounters, you go back and you look at a lot of these, you know, uh, sci-fi films from the seventies that at least have inspired, you know, Panos and me and, a Richard and it's you, you want that sense of imperfection, the sense that this is a real tangible thing that is so powerful that the camera is distorting. The camera can't capture it. The soundtrack can't capture it. And Dude, it's totally, totally. To- oh, fuck. Yeah, man. And uh, there's a reason uh, I can't say anything on the show, but there's a reason why the stuff that we talked about before the show g- exists. Uh, I got to send you some of my stuff. Like um, I have such a fucking love for, imperfections and and coming from cinematography myself i always would say to directors and i would always say to uh, uh, people that are working on my films life isn't clean Mm -hmm. if you ride with me in my car i have a filthy fucking windshield that's how we see the world is through my filthy fucking windshield and so (laughs) like that's uh, suspension for disbelief for me it's like everybody's got bad eyesight right now everybody's staring at their tiny fucking phones and trying to read small fucking text our eyes are all like our eyes are fucked, and so I love, <laughs> love, love, love to see the world that way. Um, and for me, it's like 
to equate it to music, it's, it's almost like a punk rock album. Like Mandy is like the ultimate punk rock album mm-hmm. as far as cinema is concerned. Um, and I loved, um, I loved his first one. Um, Black Rainbow. Just, Black Rainbow, my brain shut down. Yeah, that one. Because I saw that one in the theater at a festival for the first time. And you know, thankfully, whoever was projecting it uh, cranked the fucking audio too loud. And that, ex- <laughs> that, that experience just blew my face off. Um, and then Mandy, like I remember just reading the um, the log line for Mandy months or like a year prior to it was done. And it was like Nicolas Cage goes on a rampage with a chainsaw. And it was just like, fuck. And it was like, Panos is doing this? Fuck. And so that I cannot, I'm gushing too much. I cannot say enough great things about how inspiring that fucking movie is. Um, but also, uh, Color From Outer Space, I was able to see that too. I was at, here in Los Angeles. I went to the premiere. Oh, okay. And, yeah, dude. And um, it's fantastic. Uh, really great film. I love the colors in that movie. Um, and I love the kid. Kid is phenomenal in that movie. The child act. What's his name? The child actor that's in there. Oh, uh, Julian. Julian, the, y- the younger one. Yeah, he's fantastic in that movie. Yeah, yeah. I just got done seeing uh, *Haunting of Hill House*. I think like a week before I flew out to Portugal to arrive on set, <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, oh, hello. I just, I know you. <laughs> do, do you spend a lot of time on set? Do you uh, get to go on sets? It's project the project, to be honest. Um, I, I was really fortunate that on color, I was there the entire time. Um, we shot uh, 45 minutes outside of Lisbon um, in, uh, oh man, what was the name of this town? Sintra. We shot in this idyllic uh, mountain town called Sintra that is a location of a lot of the Portuguese palaces and vacation homes um, you know, dating back hundreds of years. And almost all of our entire movie was shot on this little farmhouse, in this farmhouse area. Mm-hmm. And they had me uh, posted up uh, right about 50 yards from the primary set. So, I mean, there were days where I would be in this old manor, you know, working next to my assistant, you know, cutting the scene. And Nicolas Cage would be screaming his ass off 10 feet below me, in the room down below me, you know, working on a scene because <laughs> they had built part of a room, a soundstage in the room below me. And you're hearing shotgun blast and you're hearing, you know, they're doing coverage. And so Nick is screaming again and again and again and again. Um, and that, that was, I, I was lovely for me. I, I love the travel. I love traveling the set. I like being on set. I like the sense of collaboration you get while you're there. Um, yep. But it's not, not every movie requires that. Not every movie can, you know, Put me up in that way. Um, I just got done. I just picture locked a movie last week, as a matter of fact, that not only was I not on set, but I haven't met any of the crew in person because of the really? pandemic. I, oh, right, I, right. I haven't met the director in person. I haven't met any of the producers in person. I haven't met my post-production supervisor in person. The only wow. person I actually saw, you know, that I, like in person in regards to that movie was one of my regular assistants, Robin where we would meet up occasionally, you know, transfer drives and render files and stuff. But that's the, the flip side of that equation. Um, wow. I, if I had to choose, I, I guess I'd love the experience of being on set for the, the collaborative reasons. You get yeah. to like, you on Color Out of Space, for instance, uh, I would, you know, walk over to the farmhouse. You know, it's a 30 second walk from where my editing station was walk up to Richard as they're setting up another take and I would show him my iPhone and play him back, you know, two or three rough assemblies of like individual scenes. He would shake his head and be like, Oh yes, that's excellent. Yes. 
keep going. <laughs> um, and you'll get a couple notes that way. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it just becomes, how can I say? it becomes like a work vacation and it becomes such, especially on a crew as tight as the color crew was where I'm staying in the same hotel as the actors, as the, the producers, the director, and you're just living and breathing that film for a yeah. full month. Hell yeah, dude. Hell, it, it's great to hear that you've done that because uh, on my last one on Who's There, um, I actually, we did the same thing. So we shot that whole film. We found like this old, uh, believe it or not, like this old mansion that uh, we were lucky to get. It was like almost like a Guillermo del Toro set. Oh, wow. Uh, and we found this old mansion and it was, uh, this is back on the East Coast, uh, back in Boston. And um, we locked down, we hunkered down in this mansion for like two days and um, we got snowed in one night. They had a blizzard, so we were literally snowed in to the space, which was kind of fun. And um, I was sponsored for that piece by a company that builds edit systems, and they brought me a super high-end edit system that was remote. So I was able to actually bring the edit system onto the set, into the space, and I had uh, assistant editor in there just doing assemble cuts and just you know sorting through footage. Uh, and I, I would laugh because... You know, when you see our footage, we use a lot of haze. We use a lot of volumetrics and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And he's in the, I would walk into the room next door and there's just like this like hazy monitor and this light streaming from this monitor and he's sitting in there and he's in the space, cutting in the space. And it was so valuable because I got to go and the cinematographer really loved it because we got to go and examine immediately while we were shooting, examine whether or not we had the right coverage. Mm. And so he would just go in there and go, do I need anything else? And can we just see, can you just quickly assemble a couple of those? It doesn't matter what it is. We just see the assembly of them and go, oh, right, maybe we should get another. Okay, let's go get another shot. So it was really nice to actually uh, have that play out live in the space, which it's, I loved. It's such a good tool at your disposal. Like it's, if you are, if you do have an editor on set, I mean, they can be cutting things that you shot, not only in the previous day, but if there's an urgent thing, you really need to check. You need to check this eye line. You need to make sure you got this beat. You can have a camera assistant run that card over, throw it into your laptop or your like on stage system and just scrub through the dailies or have an assembly editor throw something together, you know, using the, your camera raw or a proxy file that is on that camera, on that camera card. Mm -hmm. And you can have a super rough assembly within like 20 minutes after yeah. shooting that scene. If you're worried about moving on or striking a set or ripping something down, it can be such an invaluable tool. And it saved our butts so many times, you know, making yeah. sure we had something before we tear down a set or we have to, you know, uh, call it, you know, wrap an actor out or something like that. And you're shooting their last scene. It can be so invaluable. Yeah. And, and oftentimes I would find it useful even for talent. Like uh, one of the things I try to do when I'm on set, like I'm pretty meticulous with my, prep and my storyboards and all that kind of shit but i like to put my storyboards up on set for the entire film mm -hmm. and so when crew is there i don't care who you are if you're in catering you're there and you understand immediately what we're doing and you can see it and you get excited about it and you can actually see when we go over to the board and there's big red fucking x's so you have a sense of accomplishment where you're just like holy fuck we got 35 shots done today holy shit um but then uh the thing that was great about the editor being on set is that i could bring talent in and have them see a sequence and then just go check the sequence out. And they'd watch the sequence and go, oh, like I buy it. And it's like, good, you buy it? Good, great. So now don't question me again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're on to the next thing. So let's go do it. And it was such a really good tool for that stuff, man. Um, 
So it's cool to hear that you guys did that on that movie too, man. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. Um, anyway, so let's get uh, even deeper here. So what is your process uh, for connecting with a director? Because I assume that sometimes you're just sort of thrust into a situation where someone offers you a gig and you're like, sure, I'll take it. And the next thing you know, you're on a phone call with the director. Like how, how do you connect? How do you find what the fuck's going on in their brain? That's a great question. Uh, there's really no, every single project is different. Um, I, I've been really fortunate that the first movie I ever worked on, um, the very, very first movie, uh, this uh, 2012 movie called Rays, uh, was where I met one of my longest collaborators and probably my, yeah, my longest collaborator. Um, he, I, uh, it was 2011 and I was doing, every single kind of odd job as an editor you could be doing in Los Angeles. I was doing graphics work. I was doing spec stuff. I was doing uh, sketches for Funny or Die, um, mm -hmm. I was doing music videos. And uh, a staff member from AFI, where I just graduated about a year and a half previously, was sending out a cold call. And he said that uh, I have a feature that is looking for an editor to start tomorrow, you know, send in your websites, your resumes, whatever. Um, they yanked me out of the selection. Uh, I remember going to Burbank the next day and meeting the producers and, you know, they kind of pitched me, give me more info on the film. And I was still pretty young. I think I was only 23 or 24 at that time, but uh, I was like, whatever, whatever the stipulations are, whatever it is, I'll, I'll say yes. Just, I, 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 I want an opportunity to kind of prove myself and to mm -hmm. try this out. And uh, I met the director who was this guy named Josh Waller. And, uh, he's, we got along well in the editing room. He ended up shooting the movie just a few months after we wrapped, uh, Ray's, the, uh, the Zoe Bell project and ended up doing this, uh, movie they shot in Philadelphia with him called Mechanic with, uh, David Morse and Kieran Hines and, uh, Corey Monteith. Oh, cool, cool. Um, it was my first opportunity, uh, working with Johan, um, and Josh from that point, um, his production company, which would be which was then called The Woodshed, uh, which at that point had Elijah Wood and Daniel Noah as the partners, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, really started coming to their own. Um, they were developing this film called Cooties. They had just attached to Girl Walks Home Alone at night. And so I was there like at the genesis of all of this stuff. And they were like, we like what you're doing. Do you want to keep on working with us? And I've been really lucky that I found these set of collaborators you know, going on eight years ago and I just got done color. I think would have been our ninth movie together. Um, mm, so super cool. The, and yeah. And they're, they're the best partners you could ask for. Um, they, uh, they certainly refer me to, you know, most of their projects. Um, but as you well know, the bond and the relationship between a director and an editor is quite special. And so, although I do get put up for a lot of jobs, you know, some directors come to, you know, their projects with, you know, someone they already like or their own personnel. Um, and so, you know, some projects, you know, understandably, you know, I'm just not the right fit for, or they have other personnel, but I've been really fortunate. I'm super gracious to them because I've been put up for so many things that they've done, you know, whether it be, you know, Mandy or color out of space or, um, uh, cooties, uh, Daniel isn't real. I mean, I had no relationships with any of these directors before they had started developing something with SpectreVision. And this was something that they introed me and they set me up for. Mm. Um, so how did you, how did you, how did you break? So like, uh, Panos, for instance, how did you and Panos connect? 
that's, that's, that's a great story. Um, we, I had heard about Mandy about a year um, before they went into production. Uh, I had heard kind of the, the, the this, this gossip around the SpectreVision offices, so to speak, that, you know, they had, they had attached Johan to Mandy. They, had, they were doing this thing with Panos. They had Cage attached to it. And they were very, really, really, really close to the green light. But, you know, as you work in film, you hear about mm-hmm. a lot of these projects. And, you know, unfortunately, most never really come to fruition. And so I was, like, very, very optimistic that something would come of this. And I remember checking with, like, uh, I think Josh or Josh or Daniel, like, a month or two before they ended up started shooting. They were like, oh, yeah, it's happening. Like, we're all we're getting everybody together. We're moving down there. But it's got to be a Belgium hire they were shooting the project entirely in Belgium and for tax reasons, they wanted to put as much post-production as impossible in Belgium. And so right. they were looking like it wasn't really going to, this wasn't something that they think, they think I would, they would be able to get me on or even make the intro with Panos. Right. Fortunately, that is not what happened. Uh, <laughs> very fortunately. Uh, I remember I had a, I booked a commercial gig and I was traveling along the East coast, um, one, one June or July. And I was hitting up all these different cities on this location shoot. So we were going to New York, we were going to Baltimore and Josh texted me out of the blue one day and he's like, found out it may not have to be a Belgium hire. We'll keep you posted. By the way, here's the script. (laughs) Read the script on the plane, (laughs) fell in love with it. It's as crazy as you would imagine. Um, and you know, that, I didn't really know what to do, to, what to expect. And so I, uh, we were shooting this commercial one day in, on the outskirts of Baltimore and we were shooting this, uh, this athletic commercial. Uh-huh. And so the team I was with went out with this co- cross country group. And so they're out filming in these, uh, on the outskirts of the school, like on this cross country track. And so I was the DIT, I was the editor, I was left like at site to like watch over all of their gear and like watch over all of the stuff. (laughs) And I get a text message from Belgium and it's Waller saying, can you Skype an interview with Panos in one minute? Jesus. (laughs) And I, I, uh, I I was just thinking you have to be prepared for this. You have to be like, if opportunity comes knocking, you have to be prepared for something like this. And so I whipped, I said, yes, I whipped up my phone and I downloaded Skype from the app store. And I start talking to Panos, (laughs) like doing my interview with him in this field in outside of Baltimore at like 8 AM in the morning, uh, us time. I think Uh they had just wrapped a day of production or something like that. And we just talked about the story and we talked about the script and I told him how much it, like the script reminded me of, uh, El Topo or Holy Mountain really mm-hmm. got that sense of like 60s psychedelic and grit. And he's like, that's, that's awesome. That's exactly what I'm going for. And then about two minutes into the Skype interview, my phone died. Ugh. And I'm just like, like the phone goes blank and I'm like, what the, fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? Like interview of my life. What is going on? This cannot be happening. And I remember that I have one of those USB battery packs like in my backpack and I run over to that I'm like throwing all the shit out of my backpack like tissues and books everywhere on this field find the thing plug it in I'm like bouncing it on my knee waiting for my phone to get like the right amount of charge and, it, <laughs> and it, 30 seconds later it pops up and I'm like I, I text Waller like right away I'm like I'm back I'm back I'm back and I get back on the phone with Panos and we are you know Skyping away me using 
you know, like the little three bars I had of wire of like, you know, cellular signal in this field in the middle of nowhere. And that's how we connected. Um, he was like, and this was one of the biggest coincidences, coincidences I think I will ever have in my entire career. But mm-hmm. he was like, I, 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 I think this could be a good fit. Um, but I would like you to come out to Belgium to meet and to like, you know, meet the financiers and everything. And I swear to God, this, this had to be ordained or something because on this commercial, we were slated to go to Berlin a uh, week later. Oh, wow. And wow. never, never been to Berlin, never been to Western Europe. And I'm like, funny, you should mention that. And so I, we got on a flight to Berlin. I landed at the airport. I hopped the flight to Brussels immediately. I went to Brussels for like two days. I, I met up with, um, Panos that way in person kind of mm-hmm. shadowed him for for like half a day and met uh, met a lot of the crew who I hadn't met yet and then I was about to leave and Josh came over and hands me a hard drive and he's like congratulations get started <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, for the I kind of put in my two weeks with this commercial I was like this is a ch- this is the chance of a lifetime I will get you through as long as I can on this commercial but here's another editor you should talk to I'm gonna go do this psychedelic Nicolas Cage horror movie. Of course. Of course. Um, And it then became one of the more kind of fun editing editing experiences I will ever have because I came back to LA. I edited the the beginning stages of my assembly cut at home in like my home editing bay for like two weeks. Um, Mm -hmm. Then uh, they, Panos was like, I would like you to come edit up at my home up in Vancouver. Oh, nice. And this was all kind of coming together. So like last minute. So there wasn't a work visa. Nothing had been arranged for me. But, you know, Vancouver was like a, a stone's throw from where I grew up in Western Washington and where I went to school in Bellingham, which is like a 45 minute drive from where Panos lives. So I go home. I, I borrow my parents' car. I throw in like my iMac into this car and I drive up to the Canadian border. And they're like, who are you? Why do you have a computer in your back? I'm like, oh, I'm going to go see my friend. How long are you going to be there? Uh, you know, I should be there for you know two weeks. Why do you have a computer? What are you doing there? I don't believe a word you're saying. <laughs> and eventually the border patrol agent got it out of me. Like, okay, yes, I'm going up to work on a film. You're going up to work on a movie in Canada without a work permit. And I, I, this had to be the most nerve wracking, like two minutes of my life where I think the, the only reason he eventually like let me cross was because I was like, okay, Yes, I am working on this movie. It is not a Canadian movie. It's a Belgium movie. I'm only going to be here for about two or three weeks, and then we're going to Belgium to finish the movie. So all of the money I'm getting paid is from Belgium. And then he just had, like, the biggest sigh, rolled his eyes, and he was like, ugh, whatever. <laughs> and just let me through. And I'm like, the next, like, half an hour, like, I have, like, white knuckles, like, on the steering wheel driving through, you know, southern uh, British Columbia being like – I that could have ended like, like this entire experience could have ended for me, like right there. And I wouldn't be able to do the movie. Uh, but what was that? Whoa, 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 whoa. What was this interview? Pro- like either two things. One, yeah. you need to be a better liar, my friend. Or two, <laughs> or two, they, did they have a gun on your parents? Like, like how did they get out of you that you were editing a movie? Well, they were like, you have not, you have a giant computer in the back of your car. You're not a tourist. What are you doing? Yeah. Like it's clearly you're not just visiting up here. You have work equipment in your back. In the back, <laughs> who is this friend you're seeing? Okay, your friend works in movies. Okay, and I was like, I can't. I just can't 
play stupid here, can I? I can't just. How much can I lie to a border patrol agent? Uh, you are funny. right that like I am quite a terrible liar. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> sometimes it's, sometimes it serves me well in the in the editing room. Yeah, because um, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, yeah. forced to be direct. I'm forced to be honest, which you know, I think more often than not has worked in my favor. Um, but you know, from that point forward, like getting into Vancouver, like Panos set up an area in his basement where we would work every single day. Um, I would show up to his apartment around like 9 a.m. in the morning. Um, I still wasn't done with the assembly yet at, at this time. So I would come in, work on a scene until like 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I would go get lunch somewhere, like come back. Panos would come downstairs and we'd review together for, you know, from like 2 o'clock in the afternoon till like 7 o'clock at night. And then we'd have dinner at his house watching Jeopardy. Super cool. <laughs> Super cool, man. That's great. Yeah. That's great. What's the um what's the process for you with the assembly cut? So when do you do it the same way every time or is it different per project? And then are you just sort of like going through director's notes at that point? Or are you just sort of going through footage and then referencing the script and creating your own? Like how do you start? What is your assembly like? It's it's kind of a little bit of everything. It's mostly this it's mostly been the same process for the last couple of years. Whereas the first thing you want to make sure you have you think you have a good understanding of is where the director is coming for what is the vision what is the aesthetic of this what is the real story what what is the point of this what's the mm-hmm. theme of this so you kind of have all these contextual things in the back of your brain when you go into it so you're looking for you know but you're also thinking about like on a scene by scene basis who changes in this scene what is the point of view of the scene where is mm-hmm. the central moral dilemma in this what really makes the scene turn underneath you know underneath all the dialogue and the coverage what is the the material in this that really gives this a, a sense of story weight? So you try and have all that stuff kind of in the back of your brain jumping into it, but you always try and make sure you don't divorce yourself from having that epiphany moment, from having that moment of seeing something that like sparks some kind of creative juice, some kind of fun, because you never want to remove the fun element from it. So although you're watching back all these dailies, you know, it can be hours of dailies a day, you always try and stick out for something that grabs you and hooks you. And after, for me, generally, after I get done watching all of these, all of this coverage that they've shot, I generally make a select reel. And so a good example was the last movie I did, we had a day where we had this big parlor scene. We have all these actors, A camera, B camera. And I think we had like five hours for the scene between like all of these A cameras yeah. and B cameras. And in a process like that, you're just like, okay, um, just make a select reel, narrow it down. And then from that point, remember the story. Remember what it is we're here to really care about. Try and dial in that way. And I generally try and get the cut pretty firm mm-hmm. before I send to the director for the first time. I generally don't like sharing a cut with a director that's super rudimentary or rough to make sure I'm on the right path. Uh, I think I did that a little bit more when I first started out. Maybe mm-hmm. I was a bit, little bit less confident in where I was in my career, but where I am right now, I, I will generally spend an extra day or two to really work on something I feel to kind of just make sure it's turning, not only like on the story level, but like on an emotional level, I'll make sure I'll take the time to do any kind of rudimentary sound design, whether that be building in backgrounds or ambiences. And of mm-hmm. course, you know, added in hard effects, whether it be doors or a gunshot or whatever that stuff may be. Um, I generally don't do any music at this point, um, unless you're looking at like some kind of diegetic stuff, like you're in a club, you would hear, you know, background music, or if you're in a bar, hearing a band back there or something, but score really isn't a part of this process just yet. And then when you pitch something, you, I kind of approach it like you're pitching this to the director, but 
you want to make sure, so you want to have something that is not completely rough, but it's really important when you show it to them that you need to be able to react if they come back and say, you missed the mark on this, or this isn't really working for me. You have to be able to say, that's okay. Toss it in the trash and start again. Yeah. 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 You know, fortunately yeah. that's rare. I, I've only had that a couple of times. Um, but just knowing that every single thing at that point in the process is super malleable. Um, yeah. Yeah. At least yeah, in the no, assembly stage. It's awesome to hear. Like, it's fascinating with me when I do stuff, like I did one of my films that I was cutting. Um, I actually had to go through and cut the end scene first. And I needed to cut the ending of the movie to understand how the movie was going to end, to understand that the end of the movie was any good uh, before I could go from there. Are you cutting in sequence all the time? Or are you jumping around? How does it work for you? It depends when I'm on, brought on the project, to be honest. Um, I have done movies where I've done chronological order. Um, generally, that's a movie where I've been brought on after they finished after they finished shooting. And I'm mm-hmm. starting like after camera wraps. Sometimes I found it could be kind of beneficial to start from the beginning and move forward. Now, sometimes you can't do that um, if there are particularly visual effects involved. Um, with Mandy, I was brought in, I think, halfway through the editing process. But like right away, they were like, we need you to prioritize you know, these two or three scenes because we're going to do stop motion animation on Nicolas Cage. His face is going to melt. And so you have to do those two scenes first right, and then right, do this right. other scene because we want to send this off to Johan so we can write a demo to it. So you do sometimes have other, um, other needs for the movie has, whether that be giving something to another vendor or another artist. Um, if you are working on, you know, a big, uh, you know, a, a pivotal moment in the movie, you know, some, a lot of times the producers and director are, want to make sure they have everything in the can. And so they may have you, they may ask polite, politely for you to prioritize those sequences. Mm. Um, but most of the time, it's most of the time, like I would say 90, 80% of the time, you're working on stuff as it comes back from set if you start in tandem with production. And so I could be working on a scene that is halfway through the movie. I could be working on something that is, you know, the, the first scene, like they shoot the beginning of the movie toward the very end of the process. Um, yeah. it, it differs all the time. Yeah, totally. Okay. That makes sense. And then speaking of Johan, <laughs> talk about an amazing talent and talk about uh, a talent that is incredibly missed in mm-hmm. the industry. Yeah. Um, what, um, I was fascinated, A, with him getting on that job. So him getting Mandy and then B, with the fact that he was let go from fucking Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. So that blew my mind. The fact that, uh, you know, and so part of me, and I know it's not true, but I always joke around with my friends on it where I'm like, man, part of me was wondering if some of the tracks that he was bringing into Mandy was some of the stuff that he was playing around for Blade Runner. I had no idea. And I doubt that that's true. <laughs> no, not, not the tracks. I, I will say, though, that Johan, by the time he'd already started Mandy, had a very large collection of instruments and orchestrations, mm. and he had done a lot of work into the synth world. So I think it's a very, a very large possibility that a lot of the stuff you hear in Mandy could have been, you know, not not the melody, of course, but mm-hmm. maybe some of the orchestration, some of the instruments. He may have started in the coalition process for Blade Runner. But don't yeah. quote me on that. But it's a, yeah. always a little theory I've had. Yeah, me too. Like, when I listen to it, I'm like, mm. you know, because Blade Runner is amazing and the score is really great in it. And, it, like, I cannot help but wonder, like, what would it have been like if uh, he had done it? Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot help but think that. Um, and I love the fucking score for Mandy. 
by the way. I think it's fucking fantastic. And it's sad that it, that was his last one, right? Was Mandy? It was, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, sad that that heard, was. We heard the news just a few weeks after Sundance. Ugh, brutal, man. It's so brutal. But what's your process with, um, cause you mentioned that you, you do your first stages with no music and with the type of movies that I make, which generally are thrillers and horrors, there are entire sequences like, you know, people walking down a fucking hallway, it's scared of a doorway. And you're like, none of this is scary. (laughs) None of this, none of this feels scary until I put music in. What is your opinion on temp tracks? Do you use temp tracks at all? Do you not use temp tracks? Do you prefer to get music from the composer to use? Like, how does that work? It's a scene by scene basis. Um, particularly with genre, with horror stuff, uh, Completely agree. Like, if you need some a scare beat, or if you're building a lot of tension, it, it I, it's really hard to imagine that scene working without temp. Yeah. Um, so there are exceptions to that rule. Certainly, um, I just got done doing a movie last year called The Vigil, um, where it was my first haunted house movie I've ever done, um, mm. and I found it was quite impossible to really get scenes to feel like they were working without incorporating all those elements in the temp. So without you know your your mm-hmm. scare moment without the 90% build up your, your, a lot of your creepy atmospheric drone beds and your music. Um, I, I tried to hold off on temping a lot of the movie had it with the exce- exception of some of these sequences that were particularly scare driven. Um, mm. The exceptions might be like, you know, you're working on a, a montage in, in a film. Of course you, it would be beneficial to have something in there so you can kind of imagine the rudimentary feel of like, the tempo of this, the tone of this, but like, I would never throw in, you know, something sentimental, for instance, um, in the early stages of the process. It's mostly because, um, when you're working in the assembly stage, you're just working on a scene by scene basis. You're working on, you know, this scene, and then you jump onto something scene 56, and then you work on scene 24 and you're doing all the stuff out of order. And if you do yeah. a lot of work on, you know, scoring these individual scenes, you'll find that when you put the assembly together, you'll have a hundred different scenes and there's no sense of flow between any of these scenes because every single scene has a different piece of music on it or it starts yeah. and stops with that scene. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. And then I always run into this too, even as a, as a director where it's just like <sighs> my dilemma with using a lot of temp stuff is that I feel like the temp stuff starts to influence the composer too much. Mm-hmm. And and I think there's a level, it depends on the type of composer that you talk to. I've talked to composers where they're like, I don't want any temp. I don't want it to adjust the way I see anything. And then there are other composers that are like, that's the fastest way for me to understand the tone that you're going for is by the temp tracks that you choose. And then, you know, famously on the internet, there are all sorts of um, video essays on how temp scores have affected how most for quite some time, the sound of most movies all sounded the fucking same oh, yeah. because everybody was just using the same fucking temp score. A lot of Johan's shit. Everybody was just using <laughs> the same temps. It's like, how many times can you watch a rough cut with a fucking Sicario score? Right oh my God. Sicario and Prisoners. I've been hearing so many sound alikes to his uh, Prisoner Suite. Oh my God, dude. And so then you, you sort of hit this point, and this is a conversation that I often have with either financiers or producers where I'm like, can I get the composer earlier? Mm-hmm. Can I get somebody who's going to play with some melodies, play with some themes while they read the script? Mm-hmm. Um, because then you hear the the counter argument on that where it's like, um, look at the Joker. When they couldn't figure out that sequence in the Joker in the bathroom uh, and infamously – uh, the director Todd was in there with uh, Joaquin and they had the sequence and they hadn't figured it out. And so often that happens 
in the movie prep stages where like, as a director, you'll go, I know this entire sequence except for this little moment. Mm-hmm. And we'll just figure it out. And and whenever you say we'll just figure it out, you can pretty much guarantee that that fucking moment is going to haunt you all the way till you get there. <laughs> and then you're going to be standing in set and there's going to be a whole crew of people behind you looking at you and you're going like, why didn't I just fucking figure this thing out before I got here? Um, and so for them specifically, for the Joker film, he just played a track that they were working on. Mm-hmm. So he was able to play the music. And the music inspired the dance that the Joker does in that sequence. Mm-hmm. And so I am such, I think that sound is 50% of your movie, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's so important to have that sort of inspiration. And it's this continuous argument of when can you bring people on? Can I bring my editor on set? I don't know. That's pre-money. That's money that's coming out that we normally wouldn't be paying for. Can I bring my composer on before the movie starts shooting? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Can we? I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know why I, I just rant, I just ranted on it. But uh, you what's your thoughts? Po- you have a great point. Like I, it, it on if you look at production, you have so many departments that are collaborating with one another. You have, uh, you know, de- you have camera working with art department, working with the lighting department, working with costumes. I mean, on color theory, working on you know, composition. All those departments are working together. Mm-hmm. Why should it be that music doesn't have an opportunity to influence any of that stuff until very late in the game? Uh, exactly. Like the, I think the, the Joker dance you referenced was a perfect example of that was something of all departments kind of finding a way to collaborate at a much earlier point in the process. Um, I would love to have to start as soon as possible. I would love to be involved in the, the animatic process or the, uh, uh, this, um, the storyboarding, the storyboarding process. process. Yeah. Um, you know, I know that a lot of big movies out there will under will hire the editor to do animatics for months before they even start shooting. Um, mm-hmm. I believe they do that with the Mission Impossible series. Well, they'll bring on Eddie Hamilton and he'll cut together, you know, the animatics and the storyboard so they get a sense of like how this thing is going to flow and the coverage is going to work. Be, you know, months before months before they even get out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I've always kind of thought about tent music and sound in particular, or music more specifically, I should say, is that it temp kind of feels like it's a necessary evil in the sense that I, as much as I would have loved to have a lot of demos from like every composer I'm working with at the start of editorial, the reality is that most producers or most teams don't have their deal locked in at that point, or they're concerned about just making sure they're making their days and making sure the actors are getting to set making sure that they are shooting the script out. And so a lot don't, don't even hire a composer until at some point in the editing process. Yeah. And yeah. as much I, I, I've generally found the earlier you bring composers on, the more they have an opportunity to influence what you're shooting. Um, I remember that uh, we were – the first time we heard a demo from Johan on Mandy, for instance, was I think uh, when I was out there to get the job. So they were about halfway done. He sent over his first demo, which ended up in the final film. Like when, really? Pal- yeah, when Palace and I heard it, it's it's the piece of music that is playing when uh, Mandy goes and finds the dead deer in the forest. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was cool. the first piece of music we ever heard for the film, and it was clear like this. He, this is the vibe of the film. Like this, this is the texture. This is the aesthetic. This is the sense of the, the romance and the beauty, but also that tinge of sadness that underscores the entire film like he's got it um another great example would be uh when when we hired uh colin for color out of space 
he was really campaigning hard for that job. And so when he, when SpectreVision was looking at composers, originally Johan was going to do color out of space. Like originally Johan wanted to do Mandy and color, but after Johan obviously passed away, um, and we were looking for other candidates and Colin was one of the composers that was fighting the hardest for it. Um, he mm-hmm. sent over some demos that ended up becoming, uh, the, the music that happens at the very, very end of the film, uh, where the character is like standing on the dam, um, that ended up becoming kind of the main theme through the film. And we threaded that throughout like really early on in the process. But when I kind of looping back to about this thing about necessary evil is that you it's really hard to lock picture, really hard to go into test screenings, really hard to get producers to kind of sign off on the story without getting a sense of the tone, the tempo, and that stuff that is heavily influenced by your soundtrack and and specifically music. And so you are trying to balance, you know, the needs of the film and the needs of the process, which is get a picture lock, get the producers on board with the vision, but, a lot of that time in the process, you don't have a composer brought on yet. And so it's like, how can we work in something to suggest a horror movie, for instance, that says that that gets the scare and the tone and the tempo of this beat, right? Yeah. And it's, it oftentimes it will not work without music. Well, yeah. And then sometimes when I'm cutting things, I'll get to a point where, you know, you get, you're cutting something, like if I'm cutting something outside, well, I've been doing it long enough now that I understand music tempo, and a lot of times my cuts are to a music tempo one way or another. Mm-hmm. But then you find that, early on at least, I would find that I would do a cut, and I would feel like that cut was solid, and then I would send that cut to a composer, and a younger composer would be attempting to make it work to my cut. Mm-hmm. And it took me a while to just sort of say to them, like, do me a favor, do something that sounds right. And then yes. I, will adju- I will adjust my edit to your sound. That's a, Yes, exactly. I think that's a great way of breaking it down. Um, we had an experience once where we were in a music spotting session with a young composer. And we had gotten about 30 seconds into the film. And he's like, stop, please. I'm Guys, just stop right now. What are you doing to me? Like you have a you have a Penderecki Threnody for Threnody for Hiroshima going. That's like eighty violins. Four, that's that's like hundred people in the orchestra. What are you doing? There's no way I can do that. And we're all kind of looking at each other. And we're like, well, we want your version. Like we want yeah. the tone. We like well, the sense of like dissonance and dread and eeriness. But like you can do that with you and a theremin for all we care. <laughs> like like this is now yours. Like this is the movie is now yours. We want this is just a very rudimentary roadmap. And like every, you know, every couple of minutes we'd have to, he would have to stop and he'd be like, just, just making sure you're not talking about the, the instrument or the size of the orchestra. You're just talking about tone and tempo. And we're like, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but that's great that you're able to explain that to him because on a counter, on the flip side of it, I know a lot of composers that are just like, you know, producers just have no fucking clue. Well, you know what I mean? Where they're like, just make this. And you're just like, you want me to just, yeah, just change whatever you need to change to change it and just make this. And they're like, okay, but I don't have an orchestra. <laughs> I don't have all these elements that are in this thing. So it's fast. It, I mean, at the end of the day, our business, whether you're talking to a composer or whether you're talking to um, a PA on set, it's all about communication. And exactly. it's all about trying to get everybody aligned and trying to get everybody into your brain. Um, which I, is awesome, you know? I, I think so, so many issues, you know, so many things that have happened in my career that may have been misunderstandings or moments of confusion have just resulted from poor communication skills, um, either or a lack of empathy or a lack of patience. And this is a process that takes months 
and mm. you have so many different personalities. Um, hopefully, and most of the time, I'm, I've been blessed that the team has you know, has all shared that same creative vision. Sometimes there are very differing point of views, and you have to find a way to approach every single conversation with a sense of where are you coming from, having patience for them to kind of say say what they want to say. And then sometimes it means trying to find something in the middle, trying to find a compromise, or sometimes it means trying to find their heart at the heart of their note. Like a lot of people who end up giving notes um, think they're so, think it's all, it's all about this line. It's all about this delivery. I, mm. I want you to change that. But mm. if you really, um, uh, Thelma Schu- I think it was Thelma Schumacher said this thing that uh, if you have a problem with a scene, sometimes it's not that scene. Sometimes it's like there's two scenes that came previously that have adjusted the rhythm of this area and has bumped the audience. And they don't even register that something's wrong, you know, until it's like five minutes later. So there's always yeah. kind of that fair amount of like guessing game and patience and talking and communication skills to really kind of sometimes get to the bottom of like, what is it? What are you feeling? I'm, I'm, I want to listen to you. Tell me everything you're feeling about this area, about this note. Yeah, no, it's tough. And then being a communicator and being a director, I, f- I find that it's better because it, in the beginning, when you're, t- when you're, t- when you look at being a director from the outside, you're like, you're the guy with all the answers. And it's like, th- that's not true. That's absolutely not true. You're the person that's basically a tastemaker. And you're the person that's trying to drive a ship and steer a ship, but you does you, you more often than not, I don't know what the fuck <laughs> the answer. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is to, to a specific thing. All I can do is try to explain how it makes me feel. Mm-hmm. And that is the most difficult thing to articulate. I, I like, and I'm still learning it. You know, I just dealt with it last a couple days ago with my writer and I read a new scene because we're rewriting a, a, a version of the script and the opening changed. And there's something really, and this is relevant for editing. There's something very heartbreaking about being invested in a scene or being invested in what a scene could be and then knowing that it has to change, but then you have to go through the process of mourning the change. Mm-hmm. So like you actually have to see that change happen. You have to be upset about it. You have to go through this process of like, fuck, fuck. <laughs> you know, and, and early on when I was younger, I would just be like, this isn't right, this isn't right. And I would sort of battle against it. But these days I just understand them like, let me be sad. I'm gonna be sad for about 15 minutes. <laughs> And then after 15 minutes, I'll be okay. And then you go through that process of being like, okay, why is it that I'm sad that this is that this is gone? Is it the specifics of it mm-hmm. or is it the tone of it? And if it's the tone of it, let's lasso what that tone is and reconstruct something new that has a similar tone but still accomplishes everything that we needed to change. Mm-hmm. It's It's a fascinating mindset that you have to try to get yourself into and it requires – an insane amount of empathy and it requires an insane amount of like humble sort of understanding and patience and patience. And yeah, man. I think there's, when I was younger, there was always a tendency to make sure you got it right every single day. Yeah. And it, it led to a lot of frustration and a lot of stress because a movie is not made in a day. Um, you go th- and if you're really exploring an idea that it's worth its weight, you're going to keep on coming back to the scene time and time and time again, mm-hmm. um, particularly if you're looking at an idea or a tone that you're really trying to capture that maybe you don't specifically know how to go about that. It's, it's an exploration process and you have to test yourself and believe and you know invest in yourself that this will take time to figure out. This is not going to be done in the day. This is something we're going to chip away at every single day for the next two weeks, 
three weeks, mm-hmm. four weeks. And especially if you're working on that first director's cut, which can be some of the most hands-on experience you have, you know, in regards to direct, like directors in the editing room, you know, that first month, like after I show a director of the assembly and we're working together every single day, that can be some of the longest and some of the most marathon inducing sessions, because sometimes you only get through maybe two minutes a day. If that mm. of screen time, you're mm. going, you know, if you're working with a director and they want to take a look at some directors want to take a look at like every single performance in the scene, some want to recalibrate a joke or a scare beat or um, a, uh, just making sure the subtext of the scene is reading. They want to try out, you know, and it could be anything in the scene. And you're looking at this one scene for eight, 10 hours a day. And then the next day you move on to another one and you have the roadmap in front of you, but you can't go back and look at the movie as a whole for like another month. Yeah, And so it's like, we just have to trust in the process, have patience that we are building towards something. It's kind of hard to, there's a, another, there's a quote from an author um, that I really love uh, by this author named Anne Lamott. Um, she writes mostly about like the act of writing. Um, but there was this book I read when I was a creative writing major when I was in college that she hmm. said like the, the process of writing a book is like, driving from New York to Los Angeles in the dark with your headlights. Like, <laughs> you, you can't see ahead of you in the dark. You can only see as far as your headlights. But if you just keep on following your headlights, like you will get there. But you can only see just a little bit ahead of you. And I think that's a perfect analogy for editing as well. Because some days you're only seeing the, the problem in front of you, which is I need to get through this set of notes or we need to get through the end of the reel. Or if you're looking at producer notes, you know, we need to hit X, Y, and Z. And you lose sight of the big picture. But if you just keep on trusting the process, have patience with your collaborators, your director, your producers, and just know that if you're making these incremental changes day after day and you maintain a positive attitude in the editing room, you'll get there together. It just mm. takes patience. Hell yeah, man. It sounds like it sounds like you're a lot of fun to edit with, dude. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like you're a lot of fun to edit with, man. And um Dude, I, I I cannot say how much I love it more than it, it, it. One of the one of the unfortunate side effects of the edit room for me is that I usually put on a shitload of weight. <laughs> oh, you know, I, know, I know the feeling. Because <laughs> it's just like, what are we doing? Well, I brought in barbecue today, so we're gonna eat barbecue and cut. So let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> I I get to the stage where I um, uh, you get you get into the rhythm of things, and I. When I'm not doing a movie, I try and like run, you know, three miles a day around Los Feliz. And when you're in like the middle of a movie, there are some like the last couple of movies I've done a lot of out of my home. And there'll be some Mm -hmm. days you wake up and it's like 730 and you're like, I want to get to work. And so you make the coffee and you're starting working and you barely get up off your chair until like, you know, six o'clock when my girlfriend comes home and she's like, did you move? Did you leave the apartment today? <laughs> and I'm like, now it's not a bad thing because now I'm not supposed to go outside. But yeah, sure, 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 sure. You've been quarantined your whole life at this point. So it's fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stuck in an edit room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm doing, I'm doing the best I can for civilization by not leaving my apartment. Yeah, there you go, dude. <laughs> um, Look, how are we doing on time? Okay, so we're running a little long. How are you on time? Are you still good? You still good to hang out? Yeah, I'm still good. I uh, I don't have something until uh, 2.30, so. All right, cool. Uh, Liam, while I collect my notes, are you still there, buddy? Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. Do you got any, I mean, you've been quiet in the background. You got any questions that come to your mind while I sort of collect myself? Um, You talk about like, like being on set and how does that even work? Like setting up on set as an editor. Uh, you have to be creative. 
<laughs> uh, how can I say it? Um, there are, okay, uh, perfect example. Um, I think the most rudimentary and the most gung-ho and kind of commando I had to be was uh, on my fifth movie, um, I was doing a movie uh, on Oahu where we all of the entire shoot was location based and we were shooting in the, uh, the state forests of Hawaii. Huh. And uh, I was set up in the back of a U-Haul truck. <laughs> I, I had my MacBook Pro. I had my uh, an external hard drive, and we had a, g- a little putt putt generator that was like set up like around the corner away from the truck. And I had like my system like there in the back, and that's is where I would I'd be wearing like my mud boots and uh, mosquito spray, and I'd be working on assemblies like in the back of this thing. And it was like an adventure for me. Like, that, yeah, that, that must time. have been a blast. That must have been mean, awesome. Dude. At twenty five, it was. It was. I'd never been to Hawaii, and we're out in the mud in the forest, and we're shooting this uh, chase movie, and it was it was really fun. I don't know if I would you know be doing the same thing right now, but back in the day, it was great. Like, it was a really small cast and crew, very much of like a low budget guerrilla movie, and like everybody was teaming together to make this thing happen. So in terms of like the workflow for something like that, um, I was acting as my own DIT on that movie as well. And so I would take in camera cards. I would back them up across three hard drives there on set. I would transcode things in DaVinci Resolve that day. And then the next day I would sync in the Avid and get to work on scenes. And then I would kind of do the same thing, throw something on my laptop or throw something on my phone, go visit the director, you know, on set, which would be sometimes a 10 minute hike up the side of a hill or other times it would be, you know, across the parking lot into the woods that, you know, this little like a uh, restroom area, like on the side of a road somewhere. And we're shooting into the jungle. So it looks like you're in Columbia, but matter of fact, you're only 20 yards from like the Pacific ocean mm. in Hawaii. Uh, but there are then other times where on, you know, color, for instance, I would be staying with most of the cast and crew out of a hotel in Sintra. And I would be shuttled up the set every single day. And we had a side office um, as a part of the uh, base camp. And so I had I would usually take my, uh, my MacBook Pro with me wherever on these things. And so I would set up kind of the same deal, have my external hard drive there. On this particular movie, I had my assistant sitting to the left of me. She'd be taking in proxy files from DIT, uh, syncing right there. And we would make a lot of the same calls, you know, in regards to pickups and shoots that, uh, Mike, you discussed. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we would have uh, Josh, the uh, one of the producers, come in and, you know, look at, you know, can we do anything? Can we send second unit out to do something today? What would you want from second unit if you um, could have anything? Uh, Richard would come in occasionally. I would show Richard stuff. Um in regards to, uh, let's see, on I did a movie two years ago in New York called Daniel Isn't Real, where yes. another shoot that was like entirely location based, and so almost every other day you're moving to a new location, um, and it just required having to be flexible. Um, again, MacBook Pro in my backpack, out at you know, t- 15 minutes after call, I'm set up. I got my external drive right there. My assistant is sitting to the left of me, and we're just working on working on folding chairs and a plastic table as if we'd be in the editing bay. I have my noise canceling headphones on and I'm just cutting away next to an air conditioner in Brooklyn. <laughs> uh, by the way, we haven't mentioned that. That was a great fucking movie, by the way. Daniel isn't real. It's fantastic. And I love, I love, love, love the tone that that director has. That movie really felt like it existed in the same universe as like Nightmare on Elm Street 2 for me. Oh, rad. Yeah. That, that, that movie was, I'm so happy to hear you say that. That was such a fun movie to do editorially. We, I mean, you look at like examples of like things that we 
found in the editing process. We found so Adam and I found so many fun things in that movie and just so many fun discoveries. Um, you know, we, we made up scenes from like just bits and pieces of footage from uh, around the movie. The first, the first thing that comes to mind was um, if you've seen the movie, you know that, and I'm going to spoil the movie for everybody who hasn't seen it. Um, but uh, Miles Robbins' character um, is followed around by his imaginary friend played by Patrick Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he remembers this detail from when he was a kid. And so he's going over like all these newspapers and he, he finds this like this mystery link to this clue about something about his childhood. But uh, we didn't have the scene of him like realizing, oh, wait, I'm, I'm having this memory of something back when I was a kid. And so we made up this nightmare sequence just based of like all these other scenes and all this other footage from around the film. Mm-hmm. So he has this dream that like has imagery and contains stuff that we've seen previously in the movie that motivates him making this discovery. Um, we took another thing that comes to mind in that film is that we had the sequence where things toward the end of the second act start really going downhill. Mm-hmm. for his character um, and where his imaginary friend begins to have this possessive quality over him. And they're like struggling for control of his body. Like he's this imaginary friend is like controlling his body. And we had like these four or five scenes that were all kind of accomplishing the same thing in the edit in the, in the assembly. And Adam and I had this idea, like instead of having these five, you know, thematically similar scenes, why don't we all just make them one giant scene, make them yeah. one giant, like badass montage. And we took like, like three days to prepare this thing of like this footage of him freaking, freaking out of his therapist's office, him trying to do research at a bookstore, him, um, you know, going around Brooklyn, trying to find help, um, him being tormented by his friend. And it, it was just one of these really fun discoveries that, what can I, what else can I say about it? It was a blast. Dude, I mean, there's something so cool about the power of cutting. And there's something so very interesting about how you can take what it what it does to us psychologically when you take one image and cut it up against another image. And then how much of what the audience has been through with their own lives, how much what the audience brings to a film with what they understand about how the world works and how physics work and how gravity works. And then understanding all those elements when you're in the edit room and and fucking with that, especially when you're dealing with horror and you're, st- you're dealing with like psychological horror and shit like mm-hmm. that. It's incredible. And it I'm always astounded with how the audience can fill in the blanks for shit. Mm-hmm. It always blows my mind where you're like, well, normally I would need to see a person like, you know, enter a house, walk down a hallway, open that door, go in a room to understand that they arrive at this room. But you don't necessarily need that. You can see them walk in the door and you can cut them, cut to them entering that room further in the house and the audience fills in the fucking blanks. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite quotes about storytelling, I think it was from Andrew Stanton, um, where he said, you never tell an audience that one plus one equals two. Mm-hmm. You, you, you give them one and then you give them another one and you let them make up the summation themselves. Um, I think it's a awesome. brilliant quote. Dude, it's awesome. And it makes all the sense in the world. And I love leaving things open-ended. I love open-ended endings. I, and the, the battle that we deal with as filmmakers when you're, when you're pitching things and you're getting things made is that you have to go through... Uh, I don't, it's a fascinating conversation. But you have to go through sort of the gatekeepers. So you have to go through the people that are financing. You have to go through the studio execs. You have to go through the people at the top, which generally, they're nervous Nellies. That's mm-hmm. the whole move. It's like, I don't want to get fucking fired. I don't want to pick the wrong movie. I don't want to lose our investor. 
I don't want to lose this money. So everything is nerve wracking for those folks. And I do not envy that job <laughs> at no. all. And so when you're pitching an idea to them in a script form, they are always looking for all the answers. What is the, what is, what is the reason this is happening? Uh, where does this creature come from? What is the backstory for this creature? Uh, why does this character feel this way? Ex it, it, tell us in the script exactly why all these things happen. And it's taken me a long time to sort of understand that there are two scripts for a movie. There's the script that you make to get the movie made. And then there's the script that is made for the movie. <laughs> because and, and that script that is made for the movie oftentimes doesn't come through until you get to the edit room. And when you're in the edit room, you're like, can we can we kill all this exposition? Let's just carve this shit out because it's fucking boring. And the audience is falling asleep right here. We and just went through that uh, really, not more really. than two weeks ago. Um, I, I can't say a lot about this last movie as we, we, we're still in the process of, uh, you know, we just picture lock sure. and we're moving on to sound. But you talk about exposition. We just went through the process of like at like going through the test audience process and continuously asking how much does in, how much information does the audience really need right. about this movie to enjoy it? I mean, is the exposition getting in the way of just the fun, the tone, the, the experience we want them to be having? And I we went through so many revisions, asking ourselves like, how much information do we really need to give them in this mystery movie for them to enjoy the experience? Mm. And it was so amazing and quite frankly surprising. The more we stripped, we, we spent so much time trying to clarify and like trying to, you know, uh, build, build up the understanding of like the rules of this world. And it just was none of it was working. It was just, it was coming across as forced and uh, it, it, you would have all this extra ADR and was just getting in the way of the jokes, getting in the way of the fun experience of it. And as soon as we started toning all that down, removing exposition, removing what we thought the audience needed, the thing just soared. And it was yeah. like one of those universal experiences where we showed a rough cut to our screenwriter. And it's rare that I get a note from the screenwriter where she's like, you need to remove more stuff. Most of them are like, <laughs> I can't believe you cut this out. Please put this back in. But <laughs> it was from her where she was like, you, you can delete so much of this stuff. I don't think it'll make any difference. And so the, it came down to uh, Josh Rubin and I, the director, like taking an afternoon, like after a notes process, working on an alternate cut, working on a separate version that like we were doing like unbeknownst to the producers where we were just like, let's remove as much exposition as possible. Let's spend like just five hours just gutting what we thought we needed. Yeah. And then that weekend we put up two cuts. We put up, here's the one that uh, where, where we thought like we need to try and clarify everything. And here's the other one that just says, let the audience figure it out. And we were both so nervous about like how the, uh, how all five of our producers would like react to it. I mean, because it was clear, like once we watched back the one without exposition, we were like, oh man, this is so much more fun, so much more engaging. Mm -hmm. And then we get back on like a, a call with them on Monday and it was like, oh, the, the, the trimmed down version is the one to go. Like all nice. that work you guys have been doing the last like three, like month, like try and clarify this thing. Forget about it. Like the other movies, <laughs> the other version of this is so much cleaner, so much more fun. And I, yeah, you talk about like approving things at the script stage and you get to that editing process of like making the final calls of like, what's going to go in. This is the, the form of it. And you know, your producers and your financiers have invested so much. It could be a really nerve wracking process. Just yeah, for sure. For sure. Take man. things out. You have to, and that's one of the things I love about the editing process is that you can do it like, within an hour. You can just toss 
you know, $50,000 of shoots. <laughs> you can delete this scene and just like, I, I don't, I, I'm not aware of how much it took to shoot this scene. But I just know that moving from scene A to scene B in the movie as it right now just sings better to me emotionally. And that's what you want to hear from your editor. You don't want your editor in the room going, oh, it's such a fucking sin because the scene costs so much so we shouldn't take it out. No, 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 no. That's not what I want to hear. <laughs> let, <laughs> yeah. let me let me feel that internally. What I want to hear from you is like, dude, get over it. It's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take it out. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I remember growing up watching uh, deleted scenes on DVDs. It just, and I, I couldn't fathom, like, why would you delete this? Like this, mm-hmm. this is great. This is fun. Like particularly with like a lot of Judd Apatow's comedies. Like, why would you delete this improv of Will Ferrell and Seth Rogen? Like, this is fantastic. Like, this is this is amazing. And like the more and more you learn about just the logistics of like moving from scene A to scene B to scene C and just story flow and rhythm, it's been even now like watching deleted scenes from classics. Yeah, you understand. You, you get to an understanding of like why this was omitted. And sure, how that sure. has a ripple effect, like across the entire movie sometimes. Well, yeah, because what you're trying to do is you're starting, like you, you're starting a rhythm, you're starting a pace. I, I just had this conversation the other day where it's like, okay, look, if we're going to do something, if we're going to make a movie, if we're going to make a movie that's, that's in the fucking cinema. So I'm going to make a movie that you literally leave your house to go see. Potentially, you leave your house to go see after COVID, potentially. <laughs> so like, it has to be better. There has to be something better about it than if you were going to sit at home and watch Ozark on television. Like there has to be a reason for it. Mm -hmm. So this has to be a ride. This has to be a gripping experience. So let's build this suspense. Let's build that, that excitement. So let's make sure, I think Spielberg always said, said something similar to this where he was like, every scene, there should be something in every scene that makes it worth being in the fucking movie. Mm-hmm. Like every scene should have that epic, and not necessarily epic, that's not the right word, but every scene should have that memory, it's a stamp, a stamp to it. So like when I go back and look at, or think about classics, I don't necessarily think about the entire movie. Like if I go back and think about um, the thing, immediately it's like this scene, this scene, this scene, this scene. Those are my associations with that. Or if I go back and I think about gremlins, I'm like the mom in the kitchen, Mom fighting in front of the Christmas tree, the the chair on the staircase scene. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Mm-hmm. Scenes are what are make movies rewatchable. I, I, in my personal opinion is oh, that totally. Scenes are why you rewatch movies. You don't necessarily, or at least I don't. I don't necessarily rewatch a classic movie because I want to see the whole film. <laughs> Most of the time, I'm like, remember that fucking scene? Let's go watch that. Remember this thing that was so great. This is really great. And so, when designing scenes or when designing a movie. You're trying to make sure that you have, at least I am, I'm trying to make sure that I have those sequences in that film that are the rewatchability. Yeah. It's like, this is why people are going to rewatch this thing fucking 12 years from now and be excited about it. Is this scene, this scene, and this scene. And you, I try to build those pretty early on. If you can get those early in the movie, then you're like, got it. You have the audience hooked and you're ready to rock. Yeah. And then at that point, you're on a roller coaster. You've strapped in, everybody's put their fucking phones down, hopefully. And they're going for a ride. I remember seeing some kind of uh, online video essay uh, titled like the epidemic of passable movies and watching it and being like, oh, and thinking about the uh, removing sharp edges and removing Mm -hmm. 
things that may stick out, removing things that feel strong and you know, do, trying to make a movie for the mass market and for mass audiences and reacting to test screenings. And this all kind of like ties together. But Mandy is like an, a perfect example of like, I don't know if Mandy would have been, Mandy definitely would not have been the same movie had we gone to the test screening process. Like <laughs> the producers were explicitly like, this is a movie that has to be raw, that has to be different. We we want that like scene rewatchability. Like we want it to be feel as different as possible. And to, like what you were saying, Mike, I mean, making sure that there is stuff that just feels passionate in this. Mm-hmm. And so many times to the test screening process, you end up removing so much of that spark that sometimes keeps these things alive. Um, fortunately, most of the time, if you end up removing something, you end up putting it back. You realize yeah. your discovery at some point in the editing process, and you're like, we've toned this back too much. Let's yeah. let's bring back this outlandish moment. Let's bring back this moment of of awe. That bring back this moment of, of particularly of horror films, a moment of scarring. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We, uh, I, I remember working on a film in particular where we were going through the test review process a lot. Like we were having, I think, test screenings twice a week or once a week for going on a month. And in some ways, this film did get a lot better. But in many other ways, it just completely filed this and like sanded this movie down to it was a oh. point, like kind of a shell of what it used to be. Oh. Um and, you know, at the time, none of us, I think, could really kind of tell. I mean, we're reacting to test screenings. You know, everybody wanted this distributor to put out this movie as large as possible. So we're reacting to the NRGs. We're reacting to the test screening. We're, you know, the goal was like, I think the ultimatum was like, get the test score up like 10 points, and maybe we'll think about a wide release. Mm. And just being at the beck and the call of this distributor to try and like hit all these notes at, at no matter what cost. And, you know, we went through such a point of, like, sacrifice and so much of, like, was good and different about this movie to try and hit a, a mass audience. And knowing what we know now, we would have never – we would never do that. Um, I think uh, I think Daniel Noah, um, one of the partners of SpectreVision, said something that was really cool in an interview recently where he was like, we've learned that it is – that being niche and being different is our biggest asset. For sure. And sure. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, especially in this, in this place, like right now, I mean, not only making movies for like, you know, 2020, but I mean, you look at the movies that have, especially horror that has stood the test of time. It's stuff that has not been afraid to make you uncomfortable, has not been afraid to disturb people. Okay. We're cranking in. This has been a great episode. Um, I just want to say, dude, it's been a pleasure meeting you and uh, getting access to all this stuff. I, I literally want to sit around and talk and just talk about your experiences on Mandy. I'm fascinated with that. Um, but thank you for being on the show, my friend. Of course. Mike, Liam, this was a blast. Thank you guys so much for having me on. And so before we go, this is usually the part of the show where I ask our guests to give some advice to those that are listening um, and that are starting. And a lot of our listeners are young filmmakers. And I know a lot of the people listening to this episode are in editing and want to know about editing. Mm-hmm. And I refuse to have the show be about what gear do you work on? Fuck that. <laughs> Let's talk about specifics. Like if you're talking to an editor that wants to try to form a relationship with a production company or wants to try to form a relationship with a director, um, but they just don't have access, how do you, what do you think the first step for them should be? Great question. Um, I can only say what worked for me. Uh, What worked for me was 
first and foremost, just being kind with everybody you work with, knowing that opportunity could come at any second. Um, when it did come for me, uh, I was ready. I had a website ready to go and I had a collaborator that I synced up well with because I was very willing to uh, trust him. And I would were, was doing things, even creative things that may, maybe weren't necessarily in my creative zone at the beginning, but I trusted him. And I will give objective, honest advice while doing my best to remain professional and kind. Mm -hmm. And that built me an entire career. That that one being earning that one person's trust um, has given me where I am today. I would like to think I would be, you know, in a similar position, you know, regardless. But you know, we all know that this industry can be very volatile, and you need to take every every opportunity. Every single person you meet could be an opportunity for, you know, another connection, another project, um, mm -hmm. which could pay your bills, could could buy a house, could you know, give you a sense of security. So. If I had one piece of advice, it would just be to have patience and empathy with people you meet and just don't be an asshole. <laughs> I don't know. What else can I say? In regards to editing, it's, it's maintaining the pleasant environment in the editing room, being a therapist, being an artist, being honest all the time. But finding a way to be honest that you're not going to hurt feelings, that you're going to listen, show empathy, and uh, be there for them. Be that. Be there for your. Be there for your director. Be there for your producers. Be that short of the cry on. Be the bartender. that's our episode. I had a blast on that one. I hope you guys really enjoyed our first editor on the show. I tried to ask all the questions. I mean, look, let me be honest with you. You essentially heard me interviewing this guy as an editor. You know, I'd love to work with him. So I just went through and asked him all the questions that I would normally ask him uh, in the first time that we met. So you know how he talks about how he had a Skype call with Panos? You're essentially listening to what my Skype call with him would have been. Um, I think he's great. I think he's incredibly talented. I love his outlook. I love um, his philosophies on editing. And I love that we didn't talk about what systems. I don't know what fucking system he cuts on. Do you notice that? Do you notice that it doesn't fucking matter? Right? I didn't even ask that question. Because it's the last thing I'm going to ask. I don't He mentioned Avid. I don't know if he's on Premiere. I, who the fuck cares? It's those other skills that are more important, right? So I hope you guys like this episode. And that stuff I talked about at the end there. Um, it's, it's a dangerous thing for me to be really honest on this show because I never want to affect the outcome of my films and the outcome of my career. So I try to be as loose about what it is that I'm saying, but give you guys the actual story about what happens. And so, um, specifically, I wasn't talking about anybody, <laughs> but this is how the game works. You know what I mean? So when you're out there pitching your ideas and you're out there making your stuff and you constantly get turned down and you constantly uh, feel like no one likes your shit, it may not necessarily be true. If you make really good stuff 
if you're proud of your stuff, if you show your stuff to people that don't work in the industry and they love your stuff, then you know you have something special. And all I can say is stick with it. It's like the episode with Bill Groom, who's in his 60s. He's like, the best thing you can do is to keep going. Just keep pushing for it. Because it's just time. That's all it is, man. It's just time. And if you can somehow leverage your way into a position where you can survive as long as you need to, then the theory is you're going to make it. That's the theory. And uh, I'm living that. I'm living in that world myself, man. So keep pushing at it. And as always, thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for your support on the show. And if you don't notice, I am going to plug our YouTube channel once again. Go to In Love With The Process on YouTube and subscribe to the channel. Check out the stuff. We're trying to curate playlists of all the different uh, clips and movies and stuff that we talk about on the show as we go. Right now, we're going in order from the beginning on our YouTube channel. So we're basically rebooting the show. So for those of you who have come on late in the game, maybe you came in on episode 50, maybe you came in on episode 70, and you've been looking for an opportunity to go back and listen to early episodes, this is your opportunity. Follow us on YouTube. We're going to be remastering the old episodes and putting them together with really cool visual loops. It's a great way to go back and listen in the beginning. Love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, I will see you next Tuesday.